Welcome to New Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hicklebon on Twitter, and I'm here with uh, Doc Burford, who many of you will know from uh, the game development world or, or from Twitter, from his, uh, his popular and enjoyable at Doc Squiddy. Um, or maybe you just know his work in general, uh, which we'll ta- be talking about today. Doc, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, uh, how are you? What's going on? How's 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 life in quarantine? Uh, you know, it it's it exists. <laughs> I that's, uh, that's more t- than a lot of people say. Actually, that's pretty. Uh, that's that's bold. It's like a a very very strong positive. I, I I made a mistake of of kind of moving away from family and friends, and so I have absolutely no contact with pretty much anyone at all except for the delivery drivers who just refuse to do no contact deliveries mm. um you know but i have i have discord streaming so pretty much every night i and a bunch of friends hang out and we stream games to each other sometimes we're playing them sometimes it's like a book club where we're all watching a game happen that's that's what i'm doing with um phoenix Wright right now i'm playing phoenix Wright, and they're giving me hints and making fun oh, cool. of me for being a bad detective that's a great way to do that kind of like uh visual novel ish kind yep. of game that's how we got through all of the Danganronpas, was one of my friends go. playing it and us trying to solve the, the crimes. And uh, did you solve the crimes? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and now the series is over. Yeah, that's, that's always the problem with beating a series that you enjoy. It, it does end. Um, although I wouldn't be surprised if Danganronpa uh, surprised you with more. Um, down, not, which I mean, wouldn't be much of a surprise at all. I guess it gave you more down the line. I mean, that's mm-hmm. such a—it's been so big. Um, so uh, let me ask: like, your current output as a dev is not visual novels, though. You've been doing. No, uh, no. <laughs> you uh, you have a a, a space uh, exploration salvage game. Yeah, that hard you did space. Writing on. Yeah, yeah they. Uh... I was at uh, GDC last year um, accepting cool. an award for Paratopic, which was the horror game that I directed. And um, my friend, Rory McGuire, who's the, I believe, the sh- uh, chief creative officer there, he, he calls me and he goes, hey, uh, my cat died, so I have to go home. But I want to show you something before I go. Can you, like, make it over to see oversee this game. And I just got out of the Destiny Shacks talk and I was going to go see another Destiny talk. And I was like, I think I got time. I can make it. So I run over there. He pulls out his laptop and he's like, hey, I want you to see what I'm working on next. And of course, me being a fan of Blackbird because they'd made uh, Deserts of Karak, which is a really cool strategy game. I was I really excited. Game. I don't remember why I know that game, but that game is familiar to me. It is a Homeworld uh, prequel. Okay, okay. And Homeworld are basically my favorite strategy games ever so um i i you know i ran over excuse me i ran over there and he uh he he shows me he pulls out his laptop he's like i need you to wear headphones i'm like okay puts on headphones and i watched what ended up becoming the opening cutscene for that game um it's got like the miner's prayer but adapted for space and oh, i took cool. my headphones off and i looked at him i said something like i gotta work on this and he's like yeah that's why i'm showing it to you can you send me like your you know, your 10 best articles. And I'm like, not my, like, fiction writing? He's like, yeah, just send me your articles. So I sent him a bunch of articles that I'd written over the years at, you know, Kotaku, IGN, US Gamer, all these websites that I'd done work for. And um, 
I, I sent him that list, and then I heard nothing back for a while. Um, <laughs> so I started working on my, on my next game, which is called Adios. It's a game about a pig farmer who's decided he no longer wants to dispose of bodies for the mob. Um, and I am like just kind of minding my own business around, I think, uh, like late July. And he, and he, he writes me, and he goes, hey, uh, I want to do a paid writing test. And I mean, even... Like, most people don't do paid writing tests. I mean, geez, I'd say yes. Yeah, right? Paid writing test. Jeez. It's like, I'm, I'm getting work for just doing at least a test. Sure, why not? Or, or money, you know? So I was like, why not? Like, absolutely. But also, I mean, I was like, oh, are we still on? I'm excited now. So I wrote, I wrote this, uh, I, I answered a series of questions. They were like, what's the moon like? And I was like, oh, okay. So the moon in this world, I imagine it's like... Um, and I went into hard sci-fi and kind of explained how launching shit from Earth orbit is really hard because mm -hmm, of how big Earth mm -hmm. is. So it makes sense that you might use the moon as a staging ground. So I wrote about that. Um, they wanted an audio log, so I wrote about a uh, like a, a miner who has to lower asteroids to Mars to <laughs> like break down for scrap um, or smelt or whatever. Uh, I wrote about him talking to a school trip like a bunch of kids, and explaining what he did in a very simple way. And apparently they like these so much that I think they're in the game. I haven't, I haven't played a lot of the game oh, wow. um, recently. But uh, yeah, yeah, like as far as I know, some of those ideas ended up in the game, but then they were like, yeah, we want you. And so for three months, uh, they paid me um, like actual industry standard wages, I think, to, <laughs> to do this job. Jeez. That's great. And, yeah, it was amazing. It um, Some really bad stuff was happening in my life at the time, um, and writing for the game helped me get through it. Uh, it, was, it was really something I needed at the time that it happened. And so I wrote these... Um, I just wrote a, a ton of audio logs. Like, if, if anyone who's played the, the game has met Concrete the Cat, that's me. Um, I wrote the Machine God audio log. Like, I, I wrote random stuff about... I don't know. There, I think my favorite log is actually this lady who calls up her friend and she's like, "Hey, Jenny, it's me, other Jenny," and that <laughs> log makes me—it makes me laugh because it's just this like little detail that implies their story there, but we don't have to get into it. Yeah, I um, like that a lot. That, so I, that's what I was trying to do, right? Humans in space, like real people mm -hmm. that you give a shit about, and it's it's weird because I come from like this this film school background. Um, like my, my, one of my favorite teachers was, uh, he won the Oscar for writing Black Klansman. Um, okay. I had these people who know how to write and they, they taught me how to write like, you know, linear stories. And here I am like having to tell stories in like 30 seconds or less. So it was a really weird, um, you know, challenge for my skills, but I've done, I've done other things. There is a, a game. I don't know if I'm actually in the credits, but I rewrote almost all 60 side plus side quests for it. Um, it's not a super popular game, but I've seen it on things like Game Pass and stuff. Um, cool. I rewrote a ton of these missions for this, this game I'm not naming, uh, where I couldn't change the order in which the character portraits appeared. <laughs> I could not change the mission objectives. <laughs> and I could not change what the character portraits looked like. That is, so, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of, like, I, I know, uh, you know, from, uh, from my lit grit, life i know that um the idea of uh constraint is important i'm i'm all for it uh boy that's a lot of constraint <laughs> yeah that's... and that's i mean that's games though right like uh rihanna pratchett who you know terry pratchett's daughter who is 
a great writer in her own right, wrote games like, uh, I think, the uh, Overlord games and stuff. Um, okay. She also wrote the Tomb Raider games. And oh, she's like, yeah, basically, I got brought in super late to ch- basically try to fit story into the game they already had. And when you do that, I mean, stories are selfish. Like, stories are very, very selfish in their own, like, their construction, their existence. Everything has to serve a story if you have one. Like, if you go make, you know, Minecraft or Minesweeper, I was thinking Minesweeper and I said Minecraft, but it's true for both games. You don't have to come up with a plot so you can do whatever you want. But once you add a story, then everything needs to work in service of that. And games, because they come from uh, people who don't value story, like even the most, quote-unquote, you know, story-driven studios out there, don't really value storytelling as like an art form. I'm looking at Naughty Dog here as I say this. Um, I can get into that in a bit, but because they don't, they, they end up doing things like Uncharted 3 where you had them building all these set pieces and then trying to get Amy Hennig to, um, who's a wonderful writer, uh, best writer that Naughty Dog's ever had. They tried to get her to, you know, fit a story in there. And that's like, that's not how you, you shouldn't do that. Somebody complained to me about her um, and said, yeah, the problem with Amy Hennig is she likes to like go off, write the story and bring it to you and like hand it to you and say, this is the story. And I'm like, yeah, that's how, that's how you write stories. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, on TV it's a little different because there's like the writer's room and all the writers are, are building like arcs and seasons and stuff. But, you know, you know when you're creative director of game, that's what you do. And it's like, that's not a problem. And that's, that's how it should be. But a friend of mine who works in TV is like, yeah, you're... When people, when people start to complain about that, it's, it's usually because they wanted to have a lot more impact on the story. Mm. Um, it's a it's, it's complaint you see from people who don't know how to write. That's where okay. you see it most often. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But yeah, so I've written games in a lot of different ways, right? With Hard Space, they already had the plot worked out. They know how to tell stories in their own right. Uh, Trey, I believe, was a theater kid, like huge theater nerd. I think some of the, I think some of the writing is his in there. It, it sounds like him, and it's... It's really good. Um, okay. So they already had good sensibilities. I just showed in, I, I showed up to kind of help flesh out the universe. I wrote a ton of the lore um, for how the universe works. And, uh, you know, I was doing things like how long does it take to travel between, uh, you know, stars or how many, how many space stations are you going to want in the asteroid belt circling the sun? You know, just right. w- weird things like that, right? And then I'm, I'm factoring that into the storytelling because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, when somebody says they're leaving Earth to get to one of the later planets in the game that hasn't been announced, um, you know, how long does that take? What is that trip like? Um, so a lot of my work was like researching, you know, the 1800s. I spent a lot of time looking at. Um, there's an area in the game that hasn't been revealed yet that I, I did a lot of research on Pullman, Chicago. Area oh yeah, for, sure. You know the the guy who like tried to make everybody not get paid real cash. Yeah, Pullman um, Dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the company town uh, that all company towns aspire to be. Yeah, yeah. And so when they, when they approached me, they were like, yeah, we, we really want to look at like the 1800s. Um, the sort of, uh, I think the, the Gilded Age or a Gilded Era, whatever it's called. Yeah, Gilded um, Age, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So the Gilded Age, they're like, yeah, we want you to like look a lot into that. That's kind of where we want to go. And we, we talked about how we're not trying to make like a really funny game. Um, you know, we, we actually, in one of our conversations, we're like, yeah, we don't want to make a game that's like a parody the way that other games are. We want to make a game that's, it was like, it can still be funny, 
because people should enjoy the game, but like we want to make a game that's kind of, you know, what's it like to be in this space? So right. a lot of my writing was, you know, what can I do to bring out the humanity in this so that it's instead of being as silly as something like uh, Outer Worlds or Borderlands, get this human vibe to it. Like, how are people funny? So when I have, you know, Jenny, other Jenny, or when I have uh, an audio log where the lady is trying to find her cat and starts baby talking to it without remembering she's recording herself, <laughs> um, you know, things like that that kind of bring out, you know, they, they, they hopefully make you chuckle, make you laugh, endear you to the characters, but they're not like comedy. It's not, you know, hey, we're this corporation. We're treating you like garbage. It was kind of me having worked under a capitalist system and, and wanting to approach the world in a way that, because capitalism is funny. I know that sounds weird, but mm -hmm. as somebody who's worked under the absurd restrictions of capital before, you know, just like working in an office place or office yeah. supply store and having people um, just do ab pull absolutely stupid things, um, you know, like rewarding us with a pizza party for busting our asses or something, you know, it, it's, I wanted to kind of get across how, how kind of helplessly funny that can feel at times. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was trying to go for. So I hope I've achieved that. Um, a lot of people are like, Hey, did you write this log? I really enjoyed. And I, <laughs> I, I either get to go, yeah, that was me or no, I actually didn't write that one. Um, but so far it's been a lot. I, I wrote so many of those that sometimes people send me a log and I'm like, did I write that? And I go look at my notes. Oh yeah, that was me. Um, you know, that's such an incredible gamble, though. To be, like, I don't think I, I don't think I would ever ask you that. Like, I think I'd be like, man, I'm loving this. I think I, you know, I think I can see your writing in some of these logs. And then I'd wait for you to tell me, because like just guessing, it just feels like such a big risk to be like, Doc, was that you? And then you'll say like, no. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's most of them. I think it's like ninety percent positive that's been me. Um, oh, okay, cool. Most of the questions that aren't me are like uh, the actual like guy talking to you parts. Um, I did not write any of any of that. I don't know who who wrote the your sort of tutorial man voice, um, but that wasn't me. And they have some there's some really funny stuff in there. Um, like there was, I don't know if it's still in the game, but they wanted to force you to do calisthenics um, <laughs> at one point. Nice. Uh, so there's some there's some funny stuff in there, but yeah, yeah, for sure. I w I'm so grateful to be. Uh, I w I'm so grateful that I've been allowed to work on that game, <laughs> and I hope they, you know, I hope they want me back. I hope people just keep praising the writing until they have no choice. Um, to bring you back for the DLCs and the sequels and all. Well, it's early access, right? So oh, sure. They're building towards a full release, and of course, I know what that is, but I'm not allowed to tell. Um, so, like. I know that a bunch of my writing kind of goes through multiple content drops, basically. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's how I'm remembering it. Um, so I'm hoping that you know they bring me back for more content drops, basically. Uh, cool. I, I think what they've got is is wonderful, and it was a genuine privilege to work on it. But um, I don't normally get to talk about what I, I work on. Um, I worked on maybe 15 to 20 AAA games at this point, uh, and I'm not allowed to ever discuss those. Yeah, you know, this is something that has like uh, really I, I want I, I want to say it in a nice way because like everyone has been super nice to me whenever I've asked like it's been something that has uh, limited let's say um, the the people that I can have on the show like I can always get indie folks on the show right. indie folks are always happy to talk and I've gotten a number of like really wonderful people on the show as, as a result of that um, 
I won't name any I, uh, people who listen to the show know generally who I mean. If I start naming people, I'll forget people. And that's the last thing I want to do. Of course. But, uh, you know, like the, the, I've had people, you know, message me and say like, oh, you know, I work at, um, you know, I work at uh, Bioware or I work at um, it or I work, you know, here like, and you know, we love your show. And I was like, oh, wow, that's incredible. Would you ever come on the show? Like, what do you think about that? And every time, and I, I've stopped asking at this point, obviously, because I'm just putting them in a bad situation. Every time it's, oh, I'd love to, but uh, NDAs. And like, yeah it, yeah, it makes it it makes it tough. Like anyone who is enthusiastic or wants to talk about their work, um, they just can't. It's really strange, too, because I, I come from the film background and like there isn't nearly as much of that. Um, there was a writer whose work I really respected until recently, um, for other reasons. Uh, his, his actual work is quite good, but he is a person turns out to be not, not great. Um, Uh you know, and his scripts would, would release years before the movies came out. He didn't care. And most people don't. There are databases where you can just go buy or go read the scripts for like a ton of movies for free. Um, you know, while Hollywood does care about secrecy when it comes generally to Stan culture type work, like Disney will, will, you know, try to be as ironclad as possible on like a Marvel movie. Of course. Um, that doesn't really happen with most stuff. Most people are secure um, that the work itself is distinct enough that talking about it isn't really a problem. So you get all these really interesting stories. I've got a book around here somewhere that's literally just hundreds of pages uh, by this guy, Kevin Brownlow. Um, Ken Brown, though? I don't know. It's, it's, it's all about, it's called The Parade's Gone By. And it's all about the history of, like, silent film and all these people who made all these movies and all the things they did. And it's just, it's, like, all access to all these people before they died. Because um, mm. he wrote it, I think, in the 70s or 60s when they were all, you know, kind of really getting up there in age. Yeah. And that's really important. Like, that book is really important. And, and you might go, how's a book about silent films important? You know, we make sound movies now. Well... When Fury Road was being screened, um, George Miller was interviewed, and people did the kind of boring questions, right? Where do your ideas come from? Or, you know, what inspires you? you know, things that don't matter. Um, and he, he told them something really interesting. He, he pointed to the parades gone by, which I guess he had there, or at least was talking about. And he goes, that's my Bible. Hmm. That is the book I read while making this movie. Um, and if you watch... Fury Road, you will see. Yeah, it's all about silent film technique. Oh yeah, no, 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 absolutely. That that I've not. I I didn't know he uh, he took that technique exactly. But you're you're one hundred percent right. Like yeah, the he... the way that like a lot of the sort of like I'm just thinking about the shot where um, the very famous shot uh, now where um, the I, I'm not going to remember anyone's name, but the 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 main like the sort of sympathetic marauder is uh, is like shooting the the it's like basically huffing the the paint right and saying mm-hmm. like you know um like uh, oh god it's been so long since i've seen for your yeah fury road but yeah he's huffing that paint and like you know uh, uh getting himself amped up to uh, essentially kill himself to try and get max and the people who are running away like the the close-up on that and the way that it it focuses and sort of like distorts his face and the the different angles i mean it 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 just looks like um Caligari or something like that. Like it is absolutely silent now, but movies, it, not silent. He, <laughs> he also spends a lot of time keeping the action in the center of the frame. Mm. Uh, his goal there is to, because it's such a fast movie um, and not just his goal, but uh, his editor's goal. Um, his, his wife 
is, mm-hmm. is his editor on that movie. And she'd apparently never oh, done an action movie before, and it's really good editing. Yeah, um, it's wonderful. But they, they keep all the action in the center of the frame so that you're not visually exhausted while watching a movie that is visually exhausting to watch. Um, uh, okay. There, there's, there's a lot of like really clever techniques like that. And so because they have all this access to history, they are capable of building upon what came before. And in games, we have a tendency to forget. Um, we have a tendency to kind of hmm, pretend good things didn't happen. An example of this is back in, well, this year, um, right? Last of Us 2 comes out, and there's some guy, and he goes, you know, this is like Schindler's List. Like, finally, people are going to take <laughs> oh, games yeah. seriously. And the funny thing is, people said the same thing when The Last of Us came out. They said it when Uncharted 4 came out. They said it when Uncharted 3 came out. They said it when Uncharted 2 came out. It is a cynical statement designed to get people excited about the game and to give it credit that it does not deserve. Right. Um, it is to... That is a game that appeals to the kind of gamer who isn't a, a student of games, but someone who uh, buys Funko Pops and then gets mad at people <laughs> online because uh, they don't have a collection of Funko Pops that's as big, right? There's, we right. like to talk casual and hardcore, but there's really casual, hardcore, and consumer. And the consumer is the person who thinks that their expertise sort of begins and ends at how much money they've spent on games. Right, um, yeah. You know, I bought a PlayStation. I have a thousand trophies, so I'm a really good gamer. You know, it's, it's the, the kind of person who is the get good scrub thing appeals to them, right? It's also mm-hmm. the person who perpetuates the our games art discourse. That's not really a question. Like, the actual question is, why aren't games taken seriously by the culture at large, right? When will my mom and dad finally acknowledge that my hobby makes me a legitimate person? Or, right. you know, when can I go to school and take classes on video games? You know, I want to play Super Mario Brothers 3 in a, you know, intro to games 101 class, right? That's what they want. And they're, they're constantly kind of, why am I not legitimate yet? So you have, you have these certain developers, um, a lot of people in the upper 90s range of game scores, will send their PR departments to various games' websites and kind of harass them. A lot of people think uh, paid reviews are a thing, and they're not. But you can have, in Vice, or I think it's, uh, it was Waypoint, but now it's Vice Gaming. They talked about this a little bit. Uh, after Rob there, who's a great editor, he, he edited some of my pieces. After Rob wrote his honest feelings about The Last of Us, Sony PR kind of came to him and was like, but don't you see how important that game is? When I wrote about uh, Prestige Games last year, someone from Naughty Dog and someone from Sony Santa Monica uh, came to me. And the Santa Monica guy basically went, yeah, you're right. Like, you're basically right. And I appreciate his honesty and forthrightness. And I, I think, you know, I think the people at Santa Monica are kind of real fucking pros and they know what they're doing. And, like, I don't love the God of War game because it's kind of... It's got the generic loot system, the three, you know, skill tier system. It's the dad and the boy on a journey. It's very, you know, video games. Um, but you know, it's a really well-made game. Um, and I appreciate, but I appreciate the frankness. The Naughty Dog guy, though, he uh, he comes to me and he goes, you know, I used to be like you. I used to think that Naughty Dog didn't make great games, but as I got a job here. I started to realize that what we're making is like, I don't think he used the word important, but that was where he was coming from. Like the idea that Naughty Dog makes games that really mean something. And like, 
you know, having just this year, having played uh, a game that means nothing. I mean, there's no value in The Last of Us 2 at all right, as a work right. of art. It, it has none. It is just bland pop, pop art. It is a Marvel movie of a video game. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just, I, I despise that game for a lot of reasons I could get into, but that would, that'd be a whole different podcast. Um, I mean, I'm, yeah, it, I, I don't, I don't want him to have to make you do that. That's like, hey, I'm 7,000 words into my essay on it. Okay. Well, you know what we'll do? I'll just, uh, I will promote that when it comes Okay. That'd be great. I yeah. mean, it, only if, only I, if you I would have anyway, um, don't worry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause like. There is this – there's this problem where – I was talking about this with uh, uh, Lucia, um and, you know – or Dialacina, sorry, um, where she was saying, you know, one of the things that people get angry about her with is, you know, she's not being nice to the people that you have to be nice to in order to make it in games writing. And, yeah. you know, that – again, like it's one of those things where it's like – sure, it sounds like you're being um, – you know, overly tough or something like that, or like, oh, like, uh, the, you know, you think you're Hunter S. Thompson or something, what, what, you know, get off your high horse. But it's true. And, like, and there are people like that. Yeah, there sure. are people like that. Um, but it's I've true, had, like, I've had critics but, like that to me. When yeah. I was like, oh, these guys are just ripping off Silent Hill. And here, this is me giving up my gamer card. I've never actually played more than two minutes of Silent Hill. Like, I watched <laughs> the first cutscene. I got out in the street and I went, this isn't dual analog. I'm gonna play this later and quit, quit it, and I haven't I haven't touched it since. Um, I think like yeah, I think like the it's funny because like you know that vision of how gaming history works, right? Where like uh, Paratopic is like Silent Hill, or um, you know The Last of Us Two is is distinct from The Last of Us One, uh, despite the fact that they are the same game that deserve the same accolades. Like this is like it's basically just list making where you're like, well, this happened previously or this happened first or this happened last or, you know, whatever. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's not you're not actually asking, like, what do these games have in common or how are these games similar? The the question is always like, OK, so like, you know, when did the trope of um, being in an unfamiliar place start? Like it's 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 just a very right. boring way of understanding I, how I think how it's, games it's work. the consumer thing. Right. Yeah, like it is. It is where we, you know, I've played all these games, right? It's why so much bad criticism I read. Like ninety percent of everything is crap. That's you know Sturgeon's Law or whatever, right? <laughs> I think it's his. Um, you know, everything. You know, there's a lot more bad stuff than good. But most games criticism, and I did this too back in the day. I still do it now, but I deploy it better. Is it, it always is like I grew up with games and I you know know a lot about how games work and, and it's it's all basically my consumption grants me authority mm-hmm, and sure. I used to do that too when I was a bad writer and then I kind of learned <laughs> that's not actually interesting it's how a person who doesn't understand video games writes um, when you actually understand video games you are more invested in kind of you know what is actually happening here how do the elements of this game work what how do how do you it's because i went to film school fundamentally right. like all the all the classes that i took that i loved were with these teachers who knew how to make movies i had some really good theory classes too but in general uh the practicality of filmmaking was was more interesting to me because the the practical teachers were like why don't we use this lens to create a sense of isolation in the frame or you know what happens if we switch from tungsten light to mercury light like mm. all these like details that you know how do all the disparate elements of the, the this gestalt art form combine to create a singular impact on a moment on the player? 
So I've been trying to bring that into my own game design sensibilities as well as my criticism. Um, I did talk about my past when I wrote about Death Stranding. I did 13,000 words on it. Um, but that was because it's a game about relationships. Right. And so I wanted, I, I treated that, that essay like a performance art piece. I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to write about connections. So I tried to do the Kojima thing of like mentioning, you know, really high concept ideas like, you know, thematics of masterworks and, you know, how many how many meaningful relationships can a human being have, scientifically speaking? All this stuff, talking about you know, parasocial relationships. We'll also say, this is my human connection. Mm -hmm. Because that was what the game is. The game is about human relationships. Yes. So that piece was like that. But a lot of what I do is trying to go, what are, how do we design for emotional impact and effect? Because that's what art really is. I, I just played uh, the start of Horizon Zero Dawn, and it's a terrible intro. Um, it, it's literally a guy just walking around talking to a baby that can't talk back and explaining the game world to the player um, in a really boring way. It's just exposition. It's not dramatically compelling. It's not exciting. Um, it doesn't suck you into the game. It's just a dude walking around while robot dinosaurs walk in the background and trying to give it, trying to pretend it's not amazing. Like, you know, <laughs> he's, he's just trying to pretend it's serious. And right. So, you know, this doesn't need to be an HBO TV show. Like, don't worry about it. Just, just do, you know... Tell a story that is interesting. And a lot of people yeah. can't, can't do that. Um, you know, the problem I have, I have this theory right now on The Last of Us 2, which is the reason that a lot of people hate Abby isn't just because they don't understand that Joel is a terrible person. Because um, a lot of people, like, he's the father of the year or whatever. And it's like, what are you doing? No, he's a bad person. <laughs> like, he's a very, he's a person who wanted to use another person for his own therapy. He literally is using Ellie. Um, it's not a healthy relationship to have, and the game never really kind of reckons with that. So a lot of the audience is like, oh, he must be a great guy. Uh, he's not. It's um, the Skylar problem, right? Like where you, like in Breaking Bad, where the audience uh, associates with one character and says like, you know, the, the moral center that the, the game or the show kind of loosely puts in but doesn't explicitly say enough, they become well, annoying or a problem. Yeah, Skylar like threatens the house of cards, right? Right, yeah. Sk Every time Skylar shows up in a scene, she doesn't ratchet up the tension. She just kind of threatens to make the... We want to watch Walter White descend into his... We want to follow that arc. Mm -hmm. And we want the tension of that to be, you know, will he get arrested? So we like Hank because Hank is like a cop and his threat's interesting. Skylar is more just like emotionally trying to make him question what he wants to do. And while she is a... I don't know if she's a good or a bad person. I'd have to really think about that character more to, to make that judgment. But yeah, I'm not gonna. she threatens <laughs> the drama of the scene. And so a lot of people, I know a lot of people are like, you only hate her because, you know, she's, she's a woman and it's all misogyny. It's like, I think if we look past that, we, we see that the reason a lot of people hate her is because she threatens to stop Walter from doing his this is not meth scene, which is what we come to the show for. Right. She's a realistic human being. And that's bad in a, a very uh, surrealist show. Right, yeah. I think, like, the, the, the weird thing about that, though, is always, like, the, what the show then attempts to be, right? Like, it, Skylar doesn't make as much sense when you're talking about, like, you know, early Breaking Bad, where Gilligan is clearly doing, like, a weird, um, like, a, I don't know, like you say, like, a surrealist sort of thing. Like, even, in this, even through the scenes with the, the, the series with, like, uh, you know, making meth in the desert um, in that sort of, like, sparse lab and all, right? Um, right. with for the for um uh Gus but like the 
by the end of the show where like it's clear that Walter has become some sort of like elemental force or something like that. I, I think like at that point, the question of like, okay, so like, why do we hate Skylar at this point? Like, she's just kind of, you know, seemingly she is saying the, the, the thing that we should be rooting for as an audience member, or like we should at least acknowledge as a, as a possibility. Often it's just because like uh, the, the protagonist is not very well defined. And I think like, that's probably, it seems to be what you're getting at with, with the last of us too, which is like, you know, you don't like Abby because she is counter to Joel, but Joel well, it's, is it's not, not a good just person. That. It's not just that, but Ellie isn't a person either. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, sorry, I know sorry. a lot of people. I, I know a lot of people can get really mad at that, but Ellie's not actually a person. She is like Elena in Uncharted Four. Um, mm-hmm. When when um, when Amy Hennig was writing. Uh, the la- or the Uncharted games, everything was character-driven. People did things based on who they were. When Druckmann kind of took over, um, since he's nowhere near as good a writer, uh, what no. he does is he loves this book called Story by Robert McKee. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Adaptation with Nick Cage, Charlie Kaufman, who wrote it, and who also wrote things like, uh, you know, um, that Jim Carrey movie about memory. Oh, uh, Eternal yeah, Sunshine. Spotless Mind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, and being John Malkovich, Charlie Kaufman's a really good writer, right? And so he wrote this movie adaptation, which was about him trying to write the movie adaptation. He was trying to mm. adapt, or, or he was trying to adapt a book. So the movie was him trying to write the screenplay, realizing he couldn't write it, and then writing about how he couldn't write it. And in the movie, he has a twin brother, um, the Nick Cage character, who is being Charlie Kaufman. He's a twin brother who goes to a Robert McKee course. And McKee's like this huge asshole. Like in real life, I know people who've taken from his course, and he's a terrible person. Uh, and he's a failed writer. While his book is wildly successful, you know, How to Succeed, um, it's kind of got the Donald Trump thing of like, if you're wanting to learn how to run a business, you don't want to read his memoir. <laughs> it's not going to teach you anything useful. But a lot of a lot of people, especially people who don't understand storytelling, love the book because it seems to offer a clear path to success. So Ellie isn't a person because she does things based on the plot demands. When I was playing Uncharted 4 just a couple days ago, uh, Elena shows up in a scene randomly in the apartment. And it happened in that moment because we just had a... like. N- Nate was stressed because his brother was in danger. Then they had a victory and a moment of happiness. And so then we needed, because the plot demanded it, we needed to have a moment where Nathan uh, is depressed again. So Elena shows up and she's basically like, I can't believe you're going on adventures. You lied to me. And it's like, it's weird that Nathan lied to her. It's weird that she's not like she normally is. Uh, in every other game, she's like, I can't believe you're having an adventure without me. Like, take me with you. Right. I love adventures. That's how she's always been. And in this one, she's just like, only there, she literally says, I've got a flight to catch and leaves. She's like only there to set up the emotional, like make Nathan feel bad for a minute. It's not really, it's not really interesting. And so my buddy Phil, who was streaming with me, he goes, you know, this would be a lot more interesting if like he, Nathan had almost died. And then the reason, like then we had a reason, right? Like if he'd almost died on an adventure. And so she was like, don't go on adventures. You might die and I might lose you. And I don't want that. And right. I was talking with him about it. I was like, you know, it would be really cool if Nathan had been, you know, like if Nathan got shot and did almost die and she had to save him, you know, or whatever, like pull him out of that. Uh, and so she, her, her worry and her fear is, you know, what, what we just said, like she's, af- if, if she's afraid of him being hurt and that's what she wants, 
we can give him a competing want that is equally valid, which is because I got shot, I didn't get to have my one last job. And now I need that. That is an emotional need that I, Nathan Drake, need. But we don't have that in this game. Instead, we have a brother who's like, you know, just shoved in for no reason. We have all these plot demands that occur because a story formula in a very successful book written by a con man said it needed to be, it needed to happen there. Right. And then Uncharted, or The Last of Us 2 comes along, it does the same thing. Ellie makes decisions because that's what the plot wants. For instance, she kills like 500 people. Um, throughout the game. She wants revenge. It's very clear. You know, all this is, she claims, oh, I'm doing it for Tommy, but she wants revenge. Like, the game makes it clear. And then after one specific kill, she then goes back and cries, and suddenly she's sad and vulnerable and open because that's where the arc needs to go if you want to fit within this blueprint. Right. But it doesn't make sense based on all the other killings that she did, where she just kind of mercilessly snapped necks. It's, the game doesn't right. deal with the yeah. idea of, like, her... But it, it goes through this plot, and then it stops. Stops halfway through the game, and it takes us back to, to Abby. And then Abby has every single emotional beat that Ellie also had. Like, literally, everything Ellie did, Abby also does. And the game wants to be like, see, it's, it's cinematic parallels. It's, you know, opposites. They're the two sides of the same coin. It, it's kind of like thinking that's profound, but it doesn't really know why it's profound, and it's not. Um, it's just kind of, wouldn't that be cool? And as a result, you, who have emotionally already taken this journey, are like, yeah, I just did this. And even, even when you don't recognize it, there's a part of your, your drive, your internal motivation that's like, this isn't surprising and I no longer want to know what happens next. So you have a lot of people who don't just hate Abby because she killed Joel. They hate Abby because when they played Abby, Abby bored them and they didn't know why. They yeah, saw the ideas at play. Oh, they're parallels. And they thought that was good, but they didn't actually realize the emotional impact of that is lost. There's no value to Abby's story. And I would have made the entire game, like if you, you know, if Sony brought me in as a consultant, we're like, how, how would we, you know, how do you make this doc, better? Doc, please help us. We're dying. Yeah. I would have said, cut all of the Ellie story completely. Mm -hmm. Just make it Abby. Because Abby is a better person. She's more well-realized. Every action she makes, even when it's not perfect, um, like it's, she, she kind of becomes a good person because she has sex one time which is problematic, um, but like her, her character arc exists. It's a little abrupt, but you could have just made an Abby game and it would have been so much stronger, so much better, so much more emotionally resonant. And I think people would have loved the character. Yeah, um, it also I, would have I, been a braver choice artistically. I think what's, like, what's interesting about what you're saying is you know, it, it speaks to, I don't know, it speaks to like this particular problem of um, video games where like, in fact the plot is always predictable because you know what beat is needed at any given time. And, and the mm -hmm. best games are the ones that, like, don't... You know, they, they still may have the same beats, but, in fact, they, they do it in different ways or give different reasons for doing it. I'm thinking, like, of... Um, I'm, like, I, I'm, I'm as critical of Kojima as I am uh, a fan. So, like, uh, you know, it's, it, like, it's a little bit of both for me at all times. Um, if anyone looked at my review of Death Stranding, like, I, I feel like... I don't know. That was the one review I ever wrote that an editor said, I don't think, I mean, and it was a junior editor and I got annoyed and it was a whole thing, but not a whole thing, but <laughs> okay. like briefly a thing uh, where they said, I don't think you've earned the right to say this about this game. Um, 
like I, I had some critical things to say about, about Death Stranding, and I had some good things to say about that, Death Stranding. But I think, like, thinking about Metal Gear Solid 2, which I, I legitimately think is a, is a well-written and fun and interesting uh, game, the way it's, it's put together. And I haven't played I think, it yet. I, I'm actually intending oh. to fairly soon. So have you played Metal Gear Solid? Nope. I have okay. played, I've played Peace Walker 5, and I loved both of those, and I okay. played Death Stranding. I played so a I, few minutes of one and four, but we're talking like maybe an hour of each most. So I don't want to give anything away that you don't know. Do you know anything about two? I know that everyone thought you were going to play as Snake again, and yeah. Kojima had you play as Raiden. So, I know that Ice Cube smelt. <laughs> yeah, these are the two things that you should know going into it. Um, but yeah, the, like so so the, the Snake Raiden uh, um, double, like, double switch, essentially, um, is way more interesting than you've been told. Um, I, I don't know if you'll find it as interesting as I did, um, but um, I'm, I'm playing them for the... Um, I'm playing them for the book. Like, I'm playing a lot of things for the book I'm writing, but, like, the... Um, the, the, the jump from one to, to two in terms of, like, you know, the, the series um, themes of, like... And I'm sure this, this shows up in Five and Peace Walker for sure. Um, the series themes of, hey, you know, like... The idea of a hero is a a flawed and bad idea. Um, like the way that that is laid out in one, particularly, and then you get to two, and Kojima intentionally sets you up to be disappointed because you don't have your chosen hero to play as is very good because it's not like you know it's not like it's that different from a lot of other games, especially in the way that the plot works. It's just that it basically makes you go. Ah, oh, I wish I wish this game like was uh, not thematically resonant and uh, and consistent with its own conceits, and uh, instead gave me the fun power fantasy I want. So is it kind of like um, near Automata in that regard? I'm on mm-hmm. the um, A2 playthrough right now, so I think yeah, PC. and I, I hate I hate 9s. And as I was playing 9s, um, I was like, oh, thank God, I can finally play A2. And one of my friends who was watching me stream goes, yeah, that's what they want. They literally are counting on you choosing not to play 9S in the future. So yep. they make him terrible. And I was like, that's really interesting. Like, I'm, I like when people do that. They're actually playing with mediums, the, the medium's form rather than just following story beats, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cre- creating intentional effect. I did this and myself. I, I can't say I'm good at it, but I did it myself <laughs> in Paratopic, right? I lost my home, and I was feeling powerless. So I wanted to write a horror game, um, and I knew without... You never, like, sit there and go, what's my theme? Okay, I'm going to write it. But, like, I was feeling powerless, and I wanted to channel all of that into something. So I, I started coming up with this idea, and I, you know, with the serial killer that I knew growing up, and, um, you know, watching my hometown die, living in the shadow of the giant Coke building, which is across mm. the street from this hippie commune, which is a really interesting contrast for me. Like, I took all these things and I put them into a game. I also yeah. took the fact that I fucking hated Gone Home. It's not a, it's not a bad game necessarily, but it, it tells you a story that you're not a part of. Like, the actual story of Gone Home is girl tries to find out where her family is by rummaging through a house they moved into while she was gone. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the plot. It's not really interesting. Yeah. You know, see, people go, actually, oh, but the story is the sister and, and finding that out. And I'm like, yeah, but you're just listening to a person talk. Like, now, see, what you that, like, do... Oh, go, sorry. We disagree. Sorry. I think... I'm sorry. I shouldn't interrupt, but, like, I think we disagree on this. I think... Um, I'm not... I'm... Gone Home is one of those games I'm also deeply critical of and have some other nice things to say about at times. 
Um, I wrote the only academic article I ever got published on games. Uh, I wrote on Gone Home and the Talos Principle. Um, I liked is, what I played of Talos a lot. Yeah, it was it's 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 decent. Um, in terms of well, anyway, in terms of the game gameplay, it's great. Um, in terms of its politics, it is uneven. Uh, but that that notwithstanding. Um, and I, I didn't uh, play enough to know that. Sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no one does. <laughs> That's the funny thing. Like it's, it's not a, it's not a reading that is particularly popular. And I think because like it's just such a fun game to play. Like in terms of gameplay, wonderful mm-hmm. game, great game, um, yeah. no complaints. But uh, the funny thing about Gone Home to me is the story is meant to make you feel good, right? Like it is, it is very easy to feel good about yourself when you play Gone Home because you are living in. Uh, at worst, the 2010s, and you're playing a story about uh, people dealing with uh, a, a queer girl in um, 1995, and yeah. everyone in the story is worse at it than you. Um, and you get to pat yourself on the back, and, except the sister, right? The sister sort of is like very understanding because she's your avatar. But well, you I was going to say, we back. don't really know what she is because she's never characterized. Right, and that's intentional, so, to, so as to make it you. Like, you know, in, in my reading anyway. But like, yeah. it, it's meant to be like, okay, hey, like, this is essentially you. Like, you're, you're, you're cool. Like, you understand love is love, and, and it's fine. Um, and, like, I think that is extremely boring to just give, to give you something that just makes you feel good about yourself as a person because like you know hey uh, you're not homophobic in the same way that the parents are isn't there um, li- isn't there literally like a musical swell when the game ends like yes she got out yay yeah i have issues with the story but it's mostly just the game itself i wrote a whole essay about on this called death of the walking sim and my editor thought it was great and then an editor above him spiked it ah and they were like basically going, you need to interview Steve Gaynor and let him tell you why his game is awesome. Oh, see, that's so like uh, here's the reason I the only the thing I love about Gone Home is I, I love one thing about it. And I think like mm-hmm. so like the thing I was fascinated by in um, my graduate career and I mean, still now, um, mm-hmm. but no one wants to hear about it because the only people who want to hear about it are in the academy. Um, yeah. And no one wants to hear from me there anymore. Uh, but the the thing I loved about Gone Home was that it it did a thing where it basically presented you with it presented you with like this this weird autonomy. Uh, yeah, this weird sort of autonomy, right? Like the the objects in the house were of course historical objects, like uh, or, or inspired by historical objects, but in that they were not like legitimate objects, right? Like they weren't things that really existed in the world. It's all like a parody of nineteen ninety five effectively. Right. You get to exist like in this weird hyper consumerist uh paradise of the nineties, uh rummaging through stuff the whole time. And this falls apart when uh, you're rummaging through stuff in service of like a uh a liberatory story that kind of falls flat, right? But at the end of the game, when you can click through and uh, be in the house and just throw stuff around in the house and, like, you're disconnected from the story. It's not about you, but you're just in some strange person's house throwing shit around. Right. Um, and you can actually rifle through the stuff and it's just a land of pure commodity. I think that's brilliant. And I, I know, like, I'm, I'm not so deluded and self-centered to assume that that's what the creators of right, God Home right. meant or wanted. Uh, but... Essentially or otherwise, they created this really wonderful little moment of of capitalist alienation in 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 art in art, and um, right. it has like literally it could have nothing 
it could have nothing less to do with the actual story. Um, and that's and that's kind of my point, right? I sat there and I played the game and I went, I hate this. And the reason that I hate this is it's making the assumption that the story happens out there and what I'm doing doesn't really refer uh, like relate to that. It's the same problem that I have with, you know, you have a uh, like gameplay cutscene. You know that meme from like 2013 that was like games in 1993 versus games now and it shows E1M6 from Doom and then just a MS Paint drawing of a level from modern games, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, seven years old at this point. Um, that is The Last of Us 2, right? That's how that game works. That's how Gone Home works. Like, even though Gone Home is more of a sandbox in its structure, it is fundamentally, you're basically just story and gameplay are separated. So I was sitting there and yeah. I was like, you know, we're, we're actually making games like as, like games are a medium, right? You know, McLuhan talks all the time about, you know, the medium is a message and all that stuff. Like, he's very clear on form is a part of function. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, well, what I learned in film school is like, one of the first things you need to do is, is this story right for a movie? Can I tell this in my 90 minute runtime? <laughs> right. If I can't, should it be a movie? Is it, is it really a novel? Is it really a comic? Is it really like, what medium does the story demand? And how do we adapt works between media, transforming them to fit the media they're in? Like, because you can't just, you know, a true adaptation of like Ulysses as a movie is going to be just someone filming each page turning. Mm. You can't, you can't really adapt house of leaves into an Amazon TV show. It would be something fundamentally different, right? Cause Are they that, actually like, doing that? That sounds like something there. That sounds like something do. they would do. Right. And yeah. a lot of people would watch that and go, this isn't like the book at all. It's like, well, yeah, the book literally will have you turning pages until there's one word on it that says like run or whatever, you know, create effect. Yeah. And that's what you're doing. Every time you make something in a medium, you are intentionally creating effect. So when I did paratopic, I knew there were very specific things I wanted to do. Um, my, one of my collaborators on the project really wanted to kind of, I would say, fuck with the audience. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, they wanted 25 minutes of uninterrupted driving, which I was like, no, that doesn't really capture the... That captures like a sense of annoyance, and that emotionally isn't right for what the scene we're trying to do. So they, they ended up getting a lot more driving in the game than I would have liked. That's the scene that I can definitely not take any credit for. Um, I can see I can see the I can see the approach though, right? Because like there's well, there's artistic merit to the decision. It was how that scene didn't actually fit the plot that I, I found myself disagreeing with. Mm, like it, fair enough. It, it it'd kind of be like having a a dance number in the middle of you know Alien, <laughs> like. It'd be fr like totally very weird. There would be friction there. Like you wouldn't have fun at that point. Like you have to have a series of everything needs to fit within the work. They need to, it needs to work to make the work, you know, what it is. There's a reason that the musical number in Blazing Saddles works, right? They do the whole Busby Berkeley musical thing because it, it works so well. It fits what they're going for. Right. Yeah. I think, I think the other thing is to say like, you know, this is, uh, I, I feel like, I feel like the, I feel like the arguments around the term dialectics have become so dumb. Um, but the one thing that actually really works when you talk about dialectics is like, you can say this is the dialectic of forming content where uh, if you think you're doing content without doing form uh, or you think you're doing form without doing content, you are uh, incorrect despite how opposite they may look. And like, right. I think the, the, the argument there and saying like, yeah, like, I think this idea is cool. Maybe it fits in our game versus I think this idea is cool. Um, is it part of the story I'm trying to tell is I, that's like, that's something that indies and AAA studios have a very hard time with. 
so the the other scene my partner did I think really did fit, which is the elevator scene where you just mm-hmm. stand Great there scene. waiting for an elevator to arrive because that actually creates tension. Mm. And then we create that release, that really, that really cute, like walking out of the elevator. Like that, she did a really good job with that scene. It's a very good scene. Um, I did a lot of other, the other scenes in the game. Um, one of them was uh, shooting the guy, right? Yeah. The reason that I laid out, and when I say did, I mean she, our arrangement on the game was essentially that she was going to build the whole episode one and then it turned up that was just the whole game um, sure. we never got to see episodes th- four through f- uh or a, two through five kind of that's all the problem yeah 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 so i i designed a lot of the scenes in that game um but she she built them and she did a really good job and one of the things that i laid out for the um the kill scene um was the reason i came up with that scene is uh, normally I try to make a work entirely internally consistent. Like I'm doing it because that's what the characters would do. Uh, I try not to comment, but mm-hmm. I had seen all these people go walking Sims are good because they're about content. Like <laughs> they're about subjects that aren't commonly seen in games. And I was like, I was like, fine, you know what? I'm going to make a walking sim where you have to kill somebody. Um, cause for me, for me, this game is perversely funny. I mean, like when no, I get the yeah, false choice sure. of all the false dialogue choices, right? There is no dialogue choice in that game that is actually matters. Um, well, and and, that it's, to me and is, it's a game. It's a game that is. I think this goes back to sort of thinking. I, I mean, my understanding of paratypic. Obviously, mm-hmm. you can disagree, and and you you would have the right of it. But the <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I can't. It, this is why. This is why. Class, people will ask me, like, you know, oh, did you read what the artist had to say about that? And I always say, like, no, I don't care what the artist says about it because, like, ultimately you can't argue with what the artist says about it. Um, I'd much prefer to talk about my reading than, like, work on their reading. Like, their well, reading I mean, I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to talk about other people's readings because it's... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's how You're I learned, right? Few. You're one of the few. Uh, okay. <laughs> most, Thank God. Most artists, most artists will, uh, will not want to do that. Uh, they'll, they'll call you a hack or whatever. Um, but anyway, like the 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 point of it is, I, I the way I understood Paratopic was to say like it is um, it, it, it's a game that like is very much about this kind of like anxious feeling and 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 this kind of anxiety. But unlike something like um, unlike something like Silent Hill, right? Like every mm-hmm. you know you were saying everyone said it's a lot like Silent Hill, and sure, I can see why they'd say that there are spooky characters. Uh, there are sort of like scares that come from the the terror of the thing in front of you and its appearance. Um, there is a a sense of like you know what is what is horrifying about this idea is in fact the 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 you know the alienness of it right that that's all something that happens in Silent Hill. It's all like it's all there, but in Silent Hill you'd never laugh at um, Pyramid Head. Pyramid Head is scary, or those nurses mm-hmm. are scary. Um, whereas like the TV head guy in, in, in Paratopic, he is perversely funny. And like, I feel like that perverse humor and that like, that like releasing of tension where you don't want it to be released almost like the pleasure would be more having tension and the game denies you that like makes it much more artistically interesting. Yeah. And because so much of the game is a joke to me and you got to remember horror and, and jokes, horror and comedy are the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're, they're oh, literally Mel, something. Mel Brooks like, quote, right? You, I mean, I, we, we just I, talked maybe, about... Maybe, maybe oh, I just... you know that one? We just talked about Blazing Saddles. I'm sorry. I'm, oh, okay. I'm such, a, uh, I'm, such a, I'm such a Mel Brooks uh, mark. Um, but uh, uh, Mel Brooks says, like... Um, well, he uses tragedy, but it's... Horror and tragedy are also the same thing. But the... Um, oh, okay. 
Uh, but I would say, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But the, um, he says, uh, he says uh, you know, comedy is, um, or uh, tragedy is me cutting my finger. Um, comedy is you falling into an open manhole and dying. Um, and I, I, have, right. I have heard that. You're right. Yeah, that's really good. For yeah. me, it was just, horror is, or, or comedy is, right, setup and punchline, right? Mm-hmm. Horror is literally just terror and then horror. I actually wrote a video essay on this years ago when some guy got really mad at me because people use the terms wrong. They, they love to think that, um, you know, they're like, oh, I love horror games, but I don't like jump scares. What I really like is the creeping sense of dread. And it's like, yeah, that's terror. That's literally what terror means, definitionally. Mm-hmm. And if you read Stephen King or you read anyone who's ever talked about horror theory, that's what they all say. Like, there's terror and it leads up to horror, which is the punctuation, just like mm. the punchline in a joke. So... Fair it's like, it's like saying, I love, I love things that are funny, but I don't like punchlines. Yeah, yeah, it, it's exactly that. It's like, no one wants to actually hear the story of the aristocrats without the aristocrats' punchline, because that whole joke is, all that perversity ends with the punchline, the aristocrats, the non sequitur, or in some cases, the satire, um, you know, depending on who's telling the joke. It's not, you don't just say a bunch of perverse shit and just leave it at that. There's no point. It's, it's pointless. It, that's not how the aristocrats as a joke functions. Oh, yeah. So when we do horror, it wouldn't it's be the same funny. Yeah. 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 It would just be like perversity. At that point, you're writing like Salo. Like, okay. Thanks. Yeah. And I Salo guess. is not funny. Like, Salo is very, very clearly not funny. Yep. Um, so with Paratopic, with, yeah, with Paratopic, I, I wrote several drafts of scenes um, where basically. I know what the entire linear sequence of events is, and if you had got the rest of the plot, you would have kind of, because it was a detective game, you would have kind of worked a lot of it out. Um, somebody on the Steam comments got it right. There's one guy <laughs> who actually worked out the entire plot. He gets it. And I, I, that was so validating. Um, the, but maybe, maybe the first and only time I've ever heard uh, a games creator say, I, I went on the Steam forums and there was something very validating there. <laughs> I think you might be right. But I, I know what the linear events are. I, I worked really hard, especially with um, our sound designer um, on that. We, we kind of laid out like how the world worked and stuff. Uh, admittedly, a lot of the work got done before we, uh, we started working together. But um, yeah, very early on, I knew I want to make a game about a walking sim that makes like pugs fun at the, you know, walking sims are pure and good. And I want to make a game that deals with the walking sim by making the story that is occurring the story that you are having. I don't want to do the, you know, Dear Esther, like, it's just the story is you walking and the plot you're hearing is completely different. And while they're emotionally maybe related, they're not really... I want what you do to be the plot. Those are the, t- those are the same thing for me. Right. Uh, but I'm, a, I'm one of those people who believes that you are the protagonist when you're playing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think... When, when somebody, like, writes a story, if they write a story where, you know, it's, like, Julius Caesar's, like, best bud, and they write an entire story about that guy, that guy's the protagonist. Julius Caesar might be the important person in the room, but that person is the protagonist. The point of view character, for me, is always the same as the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is their story. It's their reaction to the events happening to them. So in games, I'm the same way. What, it, what you are doing should be the plot. So I wrote a plot about, you know... A girl gets killed by a monster in a forest, and her death is exploited. And that results in these videotapes that can mutate whoever watches them. 
Okay. That's that's at the core. That is what is happening, right? And I then put the the scenes. I, I worked with the. We, we worked together to do this to put the scenes in an order that created emotional effect. And you know, of course, if I'd had total final control cut, I would have had a slightly different order. But I mean, that's. I think that's true of every project. Like you know, name a band. Right, that that isn't like. Well, I would have done it a little bit differently. I mean, even <laughs> yeah, no, even Rage Against the Machine broke up, and like uh, Zach De La Rocha and, and um, Tom Morello are both, you know, incredibly political dudes who seem to have the same, uh, you know, they seem to share the same political core, sentiments, yeah. but they they still aren't entirely capable of working together, right? So like, different right. people are going to have different things. But we, what we came up with, the compromise that you know we we came up with was this game where the scenes work together. It's not just like a plot thing, and it's not just a... We're not just being out of order to be cool or confusing. It's literally they work together to build emotional arcs through the plot, like through the player experience. Hmm. So if you yeah. put the scenes, if you reorder the scenes into chronological order, you'd have a very different emotional impact. And that might yeah, not necessarily no. be the right one. So being out of order is like a very specific choice that's not about just, you know, it, we're not trying to like copy Tarantino and be weird or something. <laughs> it's not just it's not just trying to be clever. It's like literally they exist because one scene leads into another scene. You're driving and then boom, cut and you're in the gas station. Right. You know, they're designed for effect. And so when we had the kill sequence, I I I told I told them that what I really wanted was for the gun to feel horrifying. Like most, mm. you know, in, in most, most of the time anyone argues with me about horror, I say horror is better with weapons and they get really mad at me. And they're like, doesn't that empower you? So I was like, okay, I'm going to give you so much power you're afraid of it. You're going to like fucking destroy this guy when you pull the trigger. That is the goal that I want. So I said like, it needs to be shocking. It needs to be like horrifying. You should be afraid of the thing in your hand. Right. Yeah. Because that's, that's what I want, right? Is this Very much like, uh, it's like, um, it's like video drum. Like I the, haven't seen that. Oh, it's a great, great scene. Um, I mean, it's it's very famous. Uh, it's Cronenberg, it. right? Yeah, you, you'd you'd really like it, I think. Yeah, somebody um, somebody told me about it while we were working on Paratopic, and I was like, well, then I definitely shouldn't watch it because I don't want it to influence me. I can um, totally understand that. It's the same same reason I got really annoyed when everybody says like you're Lynchy, and it's like I'm making a game about knowing a serial killer and losing my home and what that feels like. Like I don't want. Is that Lynchian in some way? Yeah. Yeah, it's me. It's it's what I am. Like, I mean, basically, all of the scenes in the game are what I laid out back in like September the year before we we started working on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really changed that dramatically from that plot. Yeah, I mean, the, the, so like the 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 reason I say it's it's like Cronenberg is not to say that you are uh, doing a Cronenberg, but the right. the, uh, the uh, one of the things about Videodrome uh, is I can say this once, but the movie. The movie's great, but like it, it also, I don't, I don't think you're gonna be spoiled by it if I say this. Um, I don't know if you care about that stuff. I, I'm always worried just because I live in this world now. Um, that's that's fine. Gets, go, go for it. Uh, gets, I need to watch. It I anyways. was just gonna say everyone gets so worried, worked up about this stuff. But um, uh, there's a scene at the end of the movie where James Woods' character, um, who unfortunately is James Woods, but you can, I know, it, yeah, you can, you can ignore it. He's very good in this movie, um, I would say, and. Uh, and you can you can certainly ignore that he is uh, just a, a, a total monster in real life. Um, but uh, James Woods' character is is basically a detective in this movie. Uh, he's not professionally one, but he sort of acts as one. And at the end of the movie, um, he has become like just as much you know new 
terrifying flesh, like, uh, you know, hail the new flesh is, is what he says. And, uh, as, as man and the last scene, he, when he has to kill sort of this recurring person that's come up kind of in a Dashiell Hammett kind of, uh, you know, Mr. X sort of way, mm-hmm. um, he pulls a gun from his, uh, chest which has like become a sort of like VCR cassette tape sort of thing. And okay. he just pulls it out and it is like, it is a gun, but it's also the flesh in his hand. And like, it's, it's attached huh. to him. It's, it's grotesque. It's horrifying. It's like, it's a very, very vivid weapon, but it's not a weapon that by any means would appeal to anyone in, in their right mind. Like it is, it is a, it's awful. Like it's, it's a, it's a terrifying thing. Very powerful, but it makes you feel awful to look at. Yep. Um, and that was sort of my feeling in Paratopic, too, especially in the shooting scene. I think you definitely conveyed that. Like, the, the, the scene feels very much like, I don't, want, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't, I don't like this. Um, but That's I, what I we saw in anyway. a lot of the, the, the YouTube playthroughs. Like, mm. anyone who, who streamed it or played it, like, did a video about it, they always get to that moment, and they pull the trigger, and they're like, oh, my God. And, you know, that, that's, that's not just, you know, that's like I laid out the spec there, you know, which is cool. But that's also, you know, I remember uh, when, when Jess brought it to me and she was like, look what I did. And I was like, holy shit, that's way better than I was hoping for, right? It's the same when, you know, here's the, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, like, here's the sound for it. And it mm. feels really powerful, right? Like, that was, you know, we, we, all, we all worked for the same goal. I, I I always, I always worry that when I say, like, I, you know, set out this intention, like, I can't always tell you what my collaborators were thinking. Right. So sure. I don't want to speak for them, but they did a good job. I want to praise what they did there. But, like, I know that what I laid out, what I wanted was, I want you to be afraid of the gun in your hands. And I want it to, for me, it's this, you know, perverse sense of humor, right? Like, because somebody tells you, oh, walking sims are good because you don't do violence. All right, here's a walking sim where you shoot somebody and then you get killed. Like when I laid out the verbs, it was like, kill, be killed, drive a car, talk to people. Because one thing that walking sims don't do is you don't engage, like there's no social aspect to it. And that's why I always kind of, I don't like, like I resent the idea that, oh, subject matter is what makes a game good. But like, if if art is so much about connecting with other human beings, when you have games that are kind of, uh, what's the word, like solipsistic almost, where yeah. you're the only person that exists. That's a good way of actually putting it for, for walking simulators. I think yeah. there's like, there's walking sims lose their value. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I was like, I want more than that. Hmm. And so you talk, a, you know, you're at a gas station, you talk to a guy who is not that bright. Like, I mm-hmm. love that character. Ah, that um, character is great. He loves his home. He loves his home. Like when you're like, yeah, I'm looking for work because your character is a smuggler who doesn't want to be. He's, he's not, you know, it's not by choice. And he's like, yeah, you know, I wish I could just get a job in some shit ass town and like not have to worry about, you know, the world around me. Um, the guy's like wants, he, like, he's like, yeah, I love, you know, living here basically. And he's like, but there's not much work. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's me directly trying to kind of represent where I was at, where I'd lost my home because jobs had dried up. All the consulting work I was doing, like, there was just less AAA looking for that consulting yeah. work as far as I know. And so I wasn't getting a lot of gigs. And so things like that, you know, the opportunities for me in Kansas to make video games are, are minimal. So I wanted to capture that, like this, that sensation. That was what, the, what I was going for with that character is he loves his home, but he also recognizes that there's no future here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
the power company is 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 Boeing for me, um, or in a way, Coke Industries. The way that that we used to have an oil refinery south of my house. Okay. And they, it's been torn down over the years, and now it's just this big empty space next to a grain elevator that got half demolished, and they gave up. Um, huh. My home is dying, okay. and so I put that into a game. Um, I, I really wanted to capture, like in my writing, that is what I was going for. Just, you know, and then um, we couldn't afford voice actors, and I have auditory processing issues. Okay. Um, it's like why I fall asleep during lectures um, or sermons. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, what if, what if you just can't make out what people are saying? What if it's all like Charlie Brown adults? And of course, Chris took that and tried voice modulation and all sorts of stuff and ultimately just talked like that. That's great sound engineering work. Hope, hope that Lazzy gets like shitload more, you know, yeah. sound gigs. Yeah, um, sure. But that's, that's a whole other thing. Um, well, can you talk a little bit more? Like, so like one of the things I'm super interested in and one of the things okay. we, we talked about. And it, oh, were you going somewhere? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, with that. oh, I was just going, what's funny is with that, with that gun, you know, we mm-hmm. talked about comedy. Yeah. We go back to the forest where you get killed. We've set up the assumption that the monster is in the forest, but this time you have a gun yes. and he's not there. Yeah, that is like, that is, uh, I, I, that really, really uh, threw me when I was playing it. Yep. That and uh, no, I don't like uh, giant balls of twine are my two favorite gags in that game. It's a horror game, but it's really funny. Yeah. Um, for me, at least, that's, that's how I perceive it. Not only because it's making fun of all the things I feel Walking Sims do wrong, but it's just a, it, it has to weave those two to be good, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. No, um, I would agree. I think, I think most of the most horror games that really succeed have a sense of. Um, well, so I'll say it this way um, in, in drama, in, in sort of like um, classical dramatic arts, theater whatever um there's this problem that happens a lot when people are acting um where they will do something uh uh, horrible right like horrible the character will anyway um Mm -hmm. and uh it will um it won't it won't read as horrible basically like it'll read as funny like the people will laugh at it because um it you know, it's easier to laugh at something like that uh, and, and sort of, like, get your humor out. So, like, the the example I always use is one that was told to me, um, but one that happened. My dad is an actor, and uh, he was playing uh, a role in the uh, play The Changeling um, at a, a college he was working at at the time. And his character uh, wants a ring off of this uh, body, basically, off of this corpse. And uh, can't get the ring off the finger, so he cuts the finger off instead. Right, it's like a you know means to an end sort of thing. It's a terrible, like horrible thing that that he that this character does. And Dad told me, and I've heard the story from others. Like when he did that, the audience laughed every time. They thought it was very funny. Um, and this kind of like tension between like something so awful and unexpected that it is horrifying, and something so awful and unexpected that it's funny, uh, produces some of the best tension. Um, I you think know, you're you, right. Yeah. Yeah, like it is it is one of those like troubled human reactions that I think is like I don't know, very interesting to think about. Does doesn't that happen in Indiana Jones? Um where doesn't that happen in Indiana Jones where they're doing that car chase in the first movie and something happens, I can't remember what it is, but uh Indy and the Nazi driver 
mm-hmm. look at each other and laugh, and then Indy just shoves the guy out of the car. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's a number of, yeah, that's like, Indiana Jones actually, for, for all of its, you know, contemporary problems when people are like, why is this guy looting, uh, right. et cetera. I, I, you know, I'm not saying that that's not worth talking about. Um, but there, you know, that and the um, guy with, uh, like, an amazing sword technique who Indy then shoots. Um, like, that, those two things are just, like, absolute... Uh, like kind of master classes in that uh that idea of like expectation will get an audience to want one thing and if you give them the exact opposite it will make them very confused and very like thrown off in a in a way they will remember and and perversely kind of enjoy yep i i think i think you want that in fiction you know you i think amateurs often want emotional um not contiguousness uh, it's kind of like how people go, you know, everything is shades of gray, but then they only paint exactly one shade and everyone is the same. And their, right, their, sure. usu- their attempt at profundity is usually, actually, everyone is, has a little bit of blame. It's like, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes a pers- one person is, you know, actually shooting people and another person has just said something wrong on the internet one time like there's a scale here right yeah yeah there's 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 a difference between the serial killer that i knew dennis Rader, btk right enjoyed killing people and did it for like 20 or 30 years and say um that guy i knew who you know stole cable right, right? there's a there's a big difference not like shades of gray still means you know not everyone is is equal in their morality, some people choose to do really terrible things. Well, and um, I think I feel like I feel like novels and movies, particularly, and and drama too. But drama always has kind of the drama always exists in a somewhat highbrow place, unless it's mm-hmm. um, the musical, which is like the one piece of drama that still lives in genre. Um, yeah. But like, like, I feel like film and literature has sort of gotten this right where. You'll you'll rarely read a novel where some, where there's like where people are like, well, I guess everyone's bad when it when it comes down to it. I'm thinking like even like even like sort of uh, and I mean you you can they exist, but like a novel that people would be like, this novel is good or this movie is good and smart. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking like even like a sort of like not lowbrow but distinctly middlebrow thing. Like um, uh, I watched with my wife the the TV adaptation of Little Fires Everywhere that came out on Hulu, right? And okay. that's distinctly middlebrow, right? Like one hundred percent. You know, it's a book that was on book club lists that was made into a TV show. Good luck calling it anything but right. That and that's fine. It exists in that space. Um, in that show, there is someone who acts worst. Like you can point to it and say, like this person did the bad thing, the thing that I find most problematic and bad. Um, right. And sure, everyone in the show did bad things, um, but this person is the villain. Um, and that's so much braver than something that, like, say, I mean, this is always the example given, but it's for a reason. Like Bioshock Infinite, where it's like, oh, but, you know, like, uh, the, 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 the uh, black revolutionaries in this game also wanted to kill a white baby. So maybe yeah. slavery is okay. Like yeah, that, I, that <sighs> game is – so that game is weird because uh, – Levine loves history, and he is mm-hmm. acutely aware that revolutions tend to be led by people who are not good people. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and so he's trying to do that, but his actual effect is, yeah, everyone is equivalent. It comes, 
it comes off as a centrist thing, right? You know, the better things aren't possible or hire more women prison guards, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know, those, those classic Twitter memes. It's moral equivalence tends to be centrist. Like I, I think it always is really because mm-hmm. everyone is just as bad, you know, no one, you know, we can't make the world better. Everyone's all shit. And it's like, that's, you know, it's, it's masquerading as intelligent, but it's not intelligent. No. And so when people do that in their art, it's this, it's the same kind of process, even though it's a different perspective, right? When, when art does a, you know, we should always have exactly one moral, uh, one emotional tone. That's the same sort of psychological process, I believe, that's occurring, even though it's coming out of, coming from a very, very different uh, direction and, and doing something very different. It's, it's this, ah, I'm above it all. I get it. You know, this is all the same. And it's like, that's not interesting. Yeah. So you end up with people trying to go for like this exact consistency in what they're doing yeah. where you never deviate. And, and a lot of beginner artists do that. They're afraid to have tonal shifts. And it's like, well, tonal shift gives you texture. Like you need that. It's, it, it's like, you know, if you're, you know, when a really picky child is like, I only want to eat, you know, pizza. And you're like, well, you got to have some veggies for your diet, right? You have to vary things up in your meal. You can't just have all your food can't be the exact same color, right? right. You have right. to have a multicolored plate. This is something that they told me a lot in diabetes education. It's um, true too, though. Yeah, that's, dealing that's, with that, right? Yeah, yeah. You need color on your plate for your nutrition. It's important. And, you know, as we tend to like meat and, and fat and carbs, we tend to like, you know, basically brown and white foods. Mm-hmm. A lot of people. Yeah, um, no, which is absolutely true. Got to have those veggies. You got to eat, got to eat the Brussels sprouts or whatever. My, my doctor was telling me the other day, uh, you need to eat more, uh, more broccoli. And I actually have a, not an allergy, but I have a issue uh, metabolizing it that he wasn't unaware of from a previous doctor. So I was like, well, I can't do that. So we came up with a solution though. Like, yeah, he was like, yeah, you need sulfation. Like that's important. It's an important part of eating. You know, I was like, I cannot do that. (laughs) Um, But it's to be healthy, you have to. So that's, that's what a good, a good work is, is something that is emotionally varied. And that is, I think, morally varied. Yeah. And that's like a lot of times where, um, you know, I'm thinking of something like, uh, well, you know, one of my favorite books is um, is Crime and Punishment. Um, and it, okay. it's not a book. It's a book I've read once, and it's I don't know the next time I will read it. It is not a pleasant book to read by any means. Like, well, I, I like a lot of, you know, I mean, I got my PhD in literature, so I ended up reading a lot of books people don't usually read. Um, mm-hmm. And a, a number of them became my favorites. So, you know, like, I, a lot of books I say are my favorite are stuff that no one's going to bother reading. Um, like I think Tristram Shandy's a brilliant novel. It's probably one of my favorite books. I think J.R. is maybe my favorite book. Like these aren't books people go ahead and read. But well, I'm the same way. I just got a DVD of uh, Hibiscus Hotel oh, there in 2002, which is a movie dealing with basically living on Okinawa. Right? No one's ever going to watch that. But I, I found it in film school and I loved it. So I, right. I, I yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so there are some, but there's some in that in that group, right? Where like. But that's exactly right, by the way. Like, that's exactly it. Like, there's some in that group where, like, I would totally read them again. Like, I would read, I probably will read uh, Tristram Shandy again. I think Tristram Shandy is brilliant and funny and, like, one of the books I've laughed out loud at the most. Like, it is from, you know, the 18th century, but it is, or I'm sorry, the 17th century, but it is, like, no, 18th, excuse me. It is as funny as any book I've ever read. Like, it is hilarious and and just kind of a, a perfect satire of you know what novels are supposed to do then and now um 
I would say go ahead and read it. Like I would encourage people to, and I think it's good. Um, Crime and Punishment, wonderful novel. I'd also say go and read it. You will not have fun doing it. It's like it's harrowing. It's a harrowing novel, and it has to deal a lot with moral moralism and you know the 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 problems of uh, the problems of guilt and the problems of like you know the self and all that stuff. Um, but the way it does that, the way it sets up a murder mystery or a, a, a thriller, I guess, because you know who does the murder from the first page because uh, Raskolnikov is your POV. Um, that whole thing is set up and you're drawn in and then it is like there are many places where there's not a lot of plot. It's just a lot of moralizing and concern. And that's not fun to read, but it's important that it's there, right? Like it's not what you went into it assuming you would enjoy but it is uh, all part of the patina. Like it wouldn't be a good book without it. Right. So, I mean, it's a similar thing, right? Like that's, that's the, that's the vegetables. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's the vegetables. Basically. That's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, yeah. In, in some cases, I think it's, it's more fun than vegetables, you know, <laughs> I know some people who just love vegetables though. So whatever. <laughs> people do like vegetables. I don't know. I'm, I, mm, some vegetables. Yeah. So that's a lot. No. <laughs> like, right. Right. But yeah, no, I think like, uh, so, that's a long way of saying I agree. Um, My current ask, game is, is kind of doing that same thing. Yeah. Can I ask um, about your current game? So there are two things sure. I really want to ask you about. Um, okay. I've already kept you an hour and a half. I'm sorry. Go for um, it. Go for it. I'm having fun. Oh, good. Excellent. Me too. Uh, so two things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, big, big, big question things um, that could be answered short or long, however you want. Um, so the one is about um, the one is about the um, – the new game. Like, uh, talk to me a little bit about your new game. I want to know about it. I want to hear about what you're working on. The other thing so, is some. Oh, actually, yeah. Oh, oh. I, I was going to give you both, and, and you could pick which one you want to take on first. Go, uh, go ahead and give me both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can pick and choose. You can even say, I'm only doing one. Uh, to go to hell. Uh, that's, that's fine, too. Um, but the, the other one I wanted to talk about was sort of your take on disability and, and, and how that discourse inf- it, uh, in- influences and kind of informs your approach to video games. Because we were talking about that a little bit uh, in DMs before we uh, recorded, and I thought you had some some really interesting ideas about that too. So either one of those, both of those, however you want to approach it, uh, but those are sort of the, the two things I would hate to let you go without talking about. Okay. Um, so let's start with disability, and we'll talk about audios. Okay. Um, disability has been a big part of my life since uh, – well, since I was born, but it didn't really prevent me from doing a lot until about 2005. Okay. Um, like, I was, I was in the hospital multiple times as a, a child with a lot of infections. I have, you know, tinnitus that, you know, but those aren't, those aren't like the mobility disability that I have now, where I have chronic pain and chronic fatigue, and this limits my ability to do things. Um, I'm one of those people who doesn't really like to talk about it. Like, I talk about it all the time as a means of coping. Mm-hmm. But I never want to like label myself as disability advocate, um, or you know I, I don't really want to box myself in that way. I, I have a, a friend who is marginalized in a different way who was talking to me about this, and he's like, "Yeah, I want to write about all these things," and my editors keep trying to be like, "Let's center this on your suffering as being a member of this marginalized group." Hmm. So there's a part of me that tries to avoid it, right? Yeah, but artistically. That is still manifesting in my work. Uh, in about 2006, 2007, as, as no one really knew what was happening to me. And so there was a lot of, 
I would say fear um, because it was a mystery. Yeah. Not, not understanding what a disability is, is, is I think the most frightening aspect of it. Um, and I didn't know what was happening. So there, I was lost. I was afraid. I was, you know, all these things. And my friends were passing me by. Mm. They were moving up, moving along in the world. And in 2008, I dropped out of college. Okay. You know, the, for a while I was ahead of everybody. Um, you know, I'd done the whole gifted kid thing and all that stuff. And I was, I was ahead of everybody. And suddenly everyone was passing me by. And there were people who were looking down on me who were, you know, oh, you know, you're not going out and doing all this stuff. You know, okay. you're, you know, you're not operating the way we expect you to operate. Right. And so there's a problem. There were other people who were taking offense at my disability. Um, hmm. You know, oh, you aren't coming to this, this family event. Well, you're a bad person. Hmm. Like, that's actually something that's about to happen here this weekend. Um, okay. Again. <laughs> Sorry. If they, you know, I'm immunocompromised now, right? And I'm not going to go out to a family gathering. They don't believe in COVID, so they're going to have a whole big sh shebang. Um, so, you know, <laughs> sure. I'm going to avoid that. And they're going to be mad at me. Like, that's just the way it is, you know. Can you like, um, can you lie and say you were like trapped in a pocket dimension or something? Like, uh, wish I oh, could. I'm, wish, I'm so wish sorry. I, I fell behind several barrels, and uh, and the weekend staff only comes in on Mondays, so I was stuck. I I wish, um, <laughs> but since I really suck at lying, <laughs> especially about I, uh, like completely uh, imp impossible scenarios. Yeah, I would assume. Yeah. I, yeah. It'll basically just be, yeah, I didn't feel well. I couldn't come. And I know mm -hmm. they'll get mad at me for it. Sure. Um, one of the kindest things anyone ever did to me was my dad went to climb a mountain. And he was very upset that I didn't come climb the mountain with him. And I had climbed one before. We uh, ascended Gibbs Peak in Colorado wow. um, previously. And it was really fun. That's almost 14,000 feet. Not quite there. I was bumped. Um, That's wild. Colorado's a bunch of, yeah, it's, Colorado has a bunch of 14ers. Pikes Peak is one of them. Um, and I didn't get to climb a 14er and I thought I had, and that made me sad, but Gibbs is still a really cool mountain to climb. Um, but yeah, he, he was at a Philmont scout ranch and he climbed the mountain out there. Uh, I can't remember the name. And he actually had a signal and he called me and he said, Hey, I get it now. And I'm sorry. Wow. And my dad is somebody who, who basically never apologizes. That really meant a lot to me. Um, hmm. that was really important. So I, I think about like kind of all this stuff, like access, ability. I think about relationships, like how people move beyond other people and how some people can feel left behind because of that. Like, you know, that's how I feel, right? So I yeah. deal with that a lot in my fiction. But I also deal with this idea that um, good people aren't always good people. People mm. who – I know people who pride themselves on being good people, but then they take – the inconvenience of disability and they become, they go full mask off in a way. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I've been actually abused for my disability by people who you would think are good people. Sure. Um, like somebody stole all of my clothes once while I was at the hospital. Wow. Um, because they wanted to teach me a lesson about being lazy and I was at the hospital for fatigue. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that, it's a thing people do, right? Um, mm -hmm. I had somebody try to sabotage these medical treatments I was getting, uh, by basically they were mad. I wasn't sleeping a normal schedule because I was going to the hospital and coming home and taking a nap, which was what my doctor told me to do. Right. And they, they were furious at it. Like you shouldn't be, you know, you should be awake all day or whatever. And so they, they would 
they had to ride their cycle bike for exercise. And so they would come down into the room where the bike was, where I happened to be napping, because that's where I was staying. Um, they were storing it in that same room. Oh, and geez. they would just ride their bike really loudly next to my head to force me to be awake. And it's like, couldn't you do this at the four hours I was at the hospital? Oh, like, you're a retiree. Oh. You, you absolutely could. So people did that. People who were otherwise good people who taught me as a child to be a good person took a little bit of inconvenience and basically said, so this allows me to be a bad person. So I, I got to see a lot of human nature hmm. as a result of that. Um, and so I, I've tried to take the, take what I've been given or the feelings that I've had or the experiences I've had and turn that into, turn that into an experience. Um, Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl, when I played that game, I... It did something for me. I, I was dying at the time, like really, mm. truly dying. I wasn't taking any of the meds I needed to take. I was unable to leave the house to get out of bed. Things were going very badly for me. And mm -hmm. somehow I, got, I, I was able to get myself playing some games. And I, I played Stalker. And that game at the time was so in, unstable, it just crashed like on save. <laughs> it, it's, it's the best game that's ever been made, but it, it did a lot of... It was really hard to play. It is a hostile game. Like, Dark Souls is, is a game that's, you know, made by a masochist. Like, he's a self-admitted masochist. Okay. Um, Stalker isn't like that. Stalker is, what if the world was alive and wanted you dead? I love Stalker, by the way. I, yeah. um, I, I like, I, I haven't finished it, and I, I should just start it again and play it again. But, like, it is, it is an incredible game, and one of the best parts about it is that, like, people will... People will lose their mind if you um, if you tell them you don't pl you play it unmodded. Like I play I played Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl unmodded, and it is so good how impossible it is. Like how uh -huh. how crazy the the um, the attack mechanic makes you feel. How like completely brutal it all feels. Like. It is just so bullet fun. drop or a weapon breaking on you. Yeah. Like, At one point, oh, the, the AI was so good it could beat the game without you. I really like. I like how the the that's really good. Yeah. I like that the like the the way that the um the way that the uh, the weapons work such that you have to like you know sure you can um you can like you can totally um shoot Repair? at someone five times oh, yeah. and uh, and like you will hit them once, even if it's, even if it's point blank, like it, mm -hmm. it's so unreliable that you can never count on anything. And it just, it makes for such a good atmosphere. I love it. Yeah. I'll never play it modded. I, I don't want to <laughs> like, how I like how like so broken and you, bad it feels. You say that, you say that, but I can hook you up with my mod setup. Most mod setups suck. They're, you know, it's like how you have nighttime mods in games and they just make yeah. it completely black. And it's like, do you have actual night blindness issues that you're unaware of? <laughs> you know, like that's not how human eyes work in the dark. Uh, are you okay? Um, Stalker has a lot of mods like that. But my favorite setup is a custom mix of AMK, dynamic weather, and complete. Complete fixes some graphics issues, but they cut out the complete gameplay bits. Okay. Um, All right. I think they let you shoot out light bulbs still. Good. Which I don't think was in the original game. Yeah, um, that is something that I kind of miss. Yeah. Blowouts from AMK are great. They added in the blowouts from the, the later two games. Um, 
And it does some other stuff with dynamic AI. It makes the AI more robust overall and really interesting. Um, AMK good. also makes the game a little bit harder, but not like too hard. Like some of the, the really annoying mods. Like the game isn't fun for me when it's hard. It's fun for me when it hates me. There's a difference, I feel. It's hard to explain. No, I but, get it. It's 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 different. Like the 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 way that the way that the um the way that the game feels right off the bat is I don't know, it feels hostile and empty and mean. And you can die very easily, but you also can figure it out. Like hard impossibly hard is sort of like difficult levels of doom, right? Where it's like the- you're you're you know it's hostile and stuff, but you're gaming it. You're like, okay, yeah. I am a gamer and I'm playing this and I'm gonna try and beat it. That's yeah, not really just, the point yeah. of Stalker. Yeah, I've played hard games where like, oh, well, if you go here, you can glitch the blah, 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 blah. Or, oh, just, you know, spam this ability. Where No, no, Stalker is like a game that teaches you an emotional framework mm-hmm. and an intellectual one for, for navigating its own world. It's like, hey, here are the rules. If you get really good at these rules, you become literally like you take on the role of a true stalker, like, like the guy from the movie, um, yeah. which is not you know, an adaptation, but like you become an expert in the space. It is a game that actually sort of rips away all the video game aspects of a video game and literally lets you become a stalker. So as I was playing it, I was, I was learning to defy the world. Mm. Instead of despairing, I got to a point where I was like, fuck you. I can do this. I Mm. know I can do this. And the more, I played, the stronger, the more resilience that I developed emotionally, and the game empowered me. It, it, it almost gave me permission um, to fight back. Yeah. You know, as, as I deal with some of the trauma that I've been through in my life, um, sometimes I, think, I start thinking, you know, hypotheticals about, you know, engaging with my abuser again, and it's like I start stressing out. And I, I've learned to, you know, tell myself, this isn't happening. And it causes my fight or flight response to stop. Stalker serves a similar purpose. Mm. And so for me, having lived through the, you know, lived through disability and having played Stalker and having it saved my life in that way, in, in giving me permission to fight back, giving me that emotional release, the thing I needed, by giving me a beatable challenge, it made the seemingly unbeatable suddenly feel beatable. Mm. I've taken that and I've gone, this is what I want to do with games. Like, yes, I want to make a big, um, you know, commercial first-person shooter uh, that's just a big service-based game. Uh, It's true. I want to do that, too. But, like, with horror games, right, I am dealing with emotions and hoping that my audience can feel them and then get release from that work. Yeah. Um, There's a horror game I want to make um, where uh, a second moon shows up in the sky one night, and then in your bed that night a personage of that moon, like a physical embodiment of that moon, his head is literally a moon, um, shows up at the foot of your bed and tells you that he wants you to help him kill the true moon, like the the original moon. It's very weird and surreal, right? Um, But that game sort of puts you in the thrall of this, this very, very malicious character. Um, and I'm, I'm the big, big worry I have is how do I help the audience? Like, how do I help an empathetic player want to play this game when they know that uh, they're putting their protagonist through some suffering? Right. Like, how do I help the empathetic player go? Ah, I want to see this through. 
because that's what I want. I want somebody who plays it to go through the bad times. So at the end, they have their moment of victory and it gives them release emotionally so that in their lives, when they're dealing with those problems, they've, they've already had victory. So they know they can have it again. I want to give people a sense of victory. I want to allow them to free themselves hmm. from situations that they didn't think they could get out of. Cause you know, when I was in an abusive situation, I didn't think I could get out of it. It took a really good friend sitting me down and saying, you are being abused. I've seen, these bef- I've seen these symptoms before. These are the symptoms of PTSD, and you need to get out of there. I know you don't want to give up you know, all these things right. that you think the relationship is providing you, but you need to for your own safety. I needed that person to tell me that. Yeah. So if I can do work that'll, that gives people agency back, that gives them a sense of agency back, then I've achieved what I want to with that game. Now, whether I can or not, I don't know yet because I have to figure out how to basically cause the player to suffer at the start and not just give up and go, oh, this is a game about suffering. Like, this is not a game about, this is a game about empowering the, uh, the player. Not a power fantasy, but about literally putting your agency back in your own hands, like giving that to the, the person playing the game. Well, and that's a really interesting way of approaching it because, like, of course, you know, I, 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 will, I will say up front, like, I love Dark Souls, but I think one of the, the terrible things about Dark Souls discourse is the idea of a game just being sadistic. Right, the idea of a game being like, yeah, you know, I, you're you're gonna lose a lot, and that's that's your fault. And this game is about how bad it is to lose all the time, like that. That's assumed now in a certain way, such mm-hmm. that like, it it feels like that's just what players will think when they approach it. Where they'll be like, yeah, actually, uh, this game is about suffering. I get it. Like I I've already played this game, and like convincing them that it's not that must I, yeah. I imagine that will be very difficult. Yeah, my, my programmer on Adios uh, put Dead Rising 4 on the highest difficulty a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, this is a guy who's, you know, he literally carried me through some Dark Souls encounters and made it really easy. Just, like, showed me how easy it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, right, he's very yeah. good at video games. Uh, but he was really struggling with the intro to Dead Rising 4 because it's bullshit. And he just kept playing it. And like all of our friend group, it like kind of one by one, we were like, do you really want to be doing this? And he's like, I got to beat it. I got to beat it. It's like, but are you having fun? There are people like that. There are people who just want to throw themselves at, a, at the same problem over and over and over until they get past it. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I did the, the pull-up thing in Final Fantasy VII for maybe an hour. And I was like, you know, I'm not really having fun doing this. <laughs> and the reward isn't really worth it. Like, yes, it would feel good to beat the guy. And yes, if I do it enough, I, I can beat him one time. Like, I know I can do it. I'm very close. But I want to see what happens next. What about Sephiroth? You know, <laughs> are he and Cloud going to make out? I don't fucking know. Kind of seems like what they're going for. Um, you know, and, and so we went and then Cloud fought him instead. And I was shocked by that. Um, but Now hang on a second. Well, so I'd never played Final Fantasy VII. So you had everyone to know that was Sephiroth like, was the bad guy, though, right? I, I'm I'm aware that Sephiroth is a bad guy, but I mean, when I played Resident Evil uh, Five, uh, I played Chris as pining for Wesker the whole time. Okay, yeah, um, that seems. You know, reasonable. I tend to play my protagonists as if they are really into their antagonists. Uh, yeah, forbidden, um, a kind of forbidden. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the you know Sasuke and Naruto kissing fan art, right? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's just. That's where I was. That's where I was going with that. Uh, with that experience, was just like I was playing it in this really funny way, and I was having more fun doing that than I was 
playing, um, you know, pull-ups, just playing a mini game where I mash some buttons. <laughs> right. So some people, some people want that. They, they just want to do the same thing over and over again. Me, I'm like, I've beat 42 games this year. Mm-hmm. I would like to beat more than that. Like, I want to keep, I want to play a lot of games rather than, well, it sounds impressive. And then you realize I played like an ineffable wonder of an edible place and a bunch of those like oh, three minute games. Um, Still. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, admittedly, one of those games is going to be Persona 5 and that's 150 hours long. <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, your new game is uh, something called Adios, um, which I, I, I know, and, and certainly there's been no uh, gap between these two recording sessions. Um, I'm just very smart and remember names, as anyone who watches, uh, listens to the show would know. Um, of course. <laughs> this what, completely contiguous experience. That, yeah, this completely yeah. contiguous experience. Uh, that's generally what I say about life. Um, uh, so t- tell me a little bit, a bit about Adios. Like, what is, the, what is that game? What is that project? Um, so, it doesn't so, have to be, it doesn't even have to be, like, in, uh, you know, in comparison with any of the other games you've done, just like, what is it as an object? Well, so it's kind of hard to just say it without comparison to what I've done because it okay. is a very, uh, very distinct arc, right? With Paratopic, when I conceived that in 2017, I was thinking I want to fix the walking sim and I want to do that by asking if we can have verbs and talk to other people. So I had, right. you know, s- scenes where you would go to the gas station and talk with a guy because you're afraid to go back to your car because there's a monster standing outside um, that most people didn't pick up on because he's really dark. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, your character is unable to say that. So he's just kind of standing there awkwardly talking with the guy who really likes Eric von, von Daniken, right? And it was because, like, so many walking sims are just you walking through an empty space listening to a person talk at you. And I, I was like, what if, you know... Why not make the conversation part of the game? Um, and then because I'm a terrible person, I, I had a line with, uh, you know, a character saying, you know, do you like giant balls of twine? When you ask, you know, what is there to do around here? And he <laughs> asks you that. And I give you two choices. And one is, you know, no, I don't like giant balls of twine. And the other one's like, yes, I do like giant balls of twine. It's a false choice because so many dialogue options are false. Mm-hmm. And since the protagonist of that game is fundamentally powerless, I mean, there's three protagonists in that game, but... Um, they're all powerless. But since the only person who ever gets to have dialogue options in that game is the smuggler, and he is powerless, he's forced into this job, I wanted his dialogue to reflect that. So right. you get to kind of choose how to characterize him, but if all the lines that you don't say are the lines that he's thinking. Um, so I was trying to you know, experiment with like characterization through dialogue and some other stuff like that. Adios is an evolution of my ideas there. So if my first one was, you know, how can we do all these verbs? The next one was, how can we do all these verbs that have a person who's mobile? How can you okay. really make a conversation be the whole game? So I was kind of thinking about wanting to evolve that, ki- that concept. And one day, apparently, and I say apparently because I actually found this out about a week ago, which sounds weird because it was on my was an experience I had. But like, basically, a week ago, I wanted to find out if pigs actually eat people. Because <laughs> I was suddenly like, wait, is that actually a thing? I know it's mentioned in the movie Snatch, but like, is that really a thing? And I Googled it and I found out that it roughly like the day or the day before I had pitched the game on Twitter, there was a news article saying that a woman had had a, uh, a seizure and she'd fallen in her pig pen. This is like in Eastern Europe. And, and the pigs had eaten her, right? Yeah, she'd been yeah, eaten alive yeah. by her pigs. And then I was like, oh shit, I read that, didn't I? And then I tweeted about, like, I tweeted the, the game pitch. And the game pitch was, um, the game pitch was something along the lines of, like, uh, 
you know, thinking about a game about a pig farmer who's decided he no longer wants to dump bodies for the mob. And in my head, I, I think I was kind of thinking of a guy who, you know, ends up getting eaten by the pigs he's raised his whole life. Like, I think that's yeah. where I was emotionally at in that moment. Well, it's the spookiest possible outcome. Right, right. Okay. It was kind of a sense of, like, uh, being haunted, but it wasn't a horror game. Like, that is a horrific thing, right? But yeah. in my head, whatever this was wasn't horrific. It was sad. And I really realized it was sad when um, uh, David Szymanski, who is the uh, creator of Dusk, that mm. Quake, Quake throwback. Yeah, um, that's a great game. He and uh, our, our other buddy, um, uh, Dylan, who is the guy behind the upcoming really cool stealth game, uh, Gloomwood, Okay. Both of them kind of replied, and uh, David said something like, you know, this sounds really funny. And, you know, in a, in a perverse way, it is, it is kind of funny. Um, there's, a, there's a comedic element to it where, like, you know, uh, I'm sick of doing it like, like that, um, the kind of like, uh, I wouldn't be part of any club that, uh, that would have me kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. You're the, guy, you're the guy feeding pigs to the, you're the guy feeding bodies to pigs, and you're taking a moral stance. Like, that is kind of funny. Yep, and, and, and I did try to go for that later in the script. N uh, not because of David, just as I was writing it, there are jokes in it, because that's how I write, right? I'm the guy who wrote, you know, no, I don't like Giant Balls of Twine, because I wanted to sure. force right. players to admit to liking Giant Balls of Twine. Um, Love Giant Balls so, of Twine. So we have, we have this, you know, we have this, this script that I, I've kind of... I sat down and I wrote um, all these scenes... And I thought about all these beats that I wanted to hit. Like, I wanted to write about Walter Saplata, who is a... Not really write about him, but reference him. Because his brand of crazy was interesting to me. He's a guy... <laughs> he's passed away, but he lived out in Ohio. And he claims that a blue... I read this in a Smithsonian-published book. Um, he claimed that a Blue Angel um, pilot who had died came to, an, came to him in a dream and told him to preserve airplanes. Huh. So if you go look at Saplata's... Um, like aerial shots of Saplata's farm, it's just all these planes, and many of them are actually super rare, like the XP-82 twin Mustang he had, which is literally like two P-51 Mustangs elongated and bolted together. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. He had a B-36, was this giant magnesium built, like it was made of magnesium bomber. It was the biggest, I think, bomber the U.S. Air Force has ever had. Wow. Um, you know, he had all this crazy stuff on his property. And I, I thought, you know, okay, what if, what if like one of the neighbors is like that? Um, you know, and I, I kind of, I, I thought about stories about my dad that he'd had from living on a farm. I made up some of my own. You know, I tried to have these two guys talking and reflecting on the life of the farmer as the hitman is pleading, pleading, don't make me kill you. And right. the farmer is like, the farmer is essentially trying to show him that he, he shouldn't. The farmer, the farmer doesn't want to die either. He wants to quit the job. So but you can't quit a job with the mob. Right. They both have a very, like, firm, you know, stance, right? And they're both sort of locked into doing what they are because of who they are as people and, you know, like, what their, you know, jobs are, respectively, right? So right, the sure. farmer is essentially, through our verbs, the farmer is showing off the farm, right? He is, you know, he's saying, hey, look at this. You know, this is cool. Like, so at one point he, he shows a, I'm spoiling a little bit, but, you know, he shows the hitman a tree. And he's like, this is a chestnut tree. All the chestnut trees died. And this tree is really important to me. And, you know, I've been taking care of it because this is, this is an extinct tree. And that, that comes from me having worked with a guy named Ross when I was a kid who was a uh, chestnut tree, like, fanatic. Mm -hmm. um, he was a preservationist. He was driving around the United States 
trying to find actual surviving chestnut trees that had just been too far from the blight to die. And he wow. found one, like he showed me, and he, he wouldn't tell me where it was, but like he had a picture of it. And he's like, yeah, that's an actual, genuine American chestnut. Four wow. billion American chestnut trees died in a matter of years when the blight first showed up in the Bronx. Um, I think it was the Bronx. It was the, uh, the Bronx Zoo, I believe. Okay. This is where they first discovered it. And it, it, over the next few years, it you know, decimated the entire logging industry in West Virginia, which is um, why uh, there's so many poor people in West Virginia. A lot of people think it's like, oh, well, coal's dying. But like before coal was dying, half of West Virginia's industry was logging and forestry. So once they yeah. lost half of that, they were like kneecapped at that point. Um, mining became the only industry, and that's a big problem. So yeah. that's, that's part of the reason that Appalachia is as poor as, is, as it is, is because all these trees are, were completely dead by 1950 or so. Um, and so I, you know, I had this guy who's like trying to, he's like our voice actor, uh, Rick Zeef, who um, he who's in like Terminator 3, I think. Um, he's, he's also like Dario Russo, the guy at the beginning of Resident Evil 3, who like hides <laughs> in the truck, or the remake, I should say. Um, nice. Yeah, he's got a really wide range. I didn't even know that was him when I, I hired him. Um, we had all these people applying and they all sounded really good, but no one sounded like that's the guy. And then, uh, as we're like, okay, I guess we're settling on this one person. Uh, we get this email coming in hot, literally apologizing. Hey, I'm very sorry for coming in hot. Here's our last guy. Um, <laughs> we didn't know if he was going to make it. He, he might be it. And he reads, he reads this line, um, which is the, uh, too big of a spoiler for me to, to say, yeah, don't, don't, it's, don't. it's my favorite section of the game and he has the line like i done wrong in it mm -hmm. and it it hit so hard and so well that i was like this is the guy and what's great is when we were recording that line in our actual recording session like not the audition i kept like he kept reading it and i kept going that's wrong that's not that's not quite what i want what what is it that i'm thinking of what like performance am i thinking of that is where i want this to go and as we're like talking about it and they, they kind of take a break, I'm like, suddenly it was your audition. <laughs> and so we pull, I, I think we pulled up the audition tape and actually played it back to him. And he's like, I got this. And he did it. And it was great. Um, wow. That's yeah. Cool. And so we, we got him and we got DC Douglas, who's the voice of, of Wesker from like Resident Evil 5 and some of the, the shooters and stuff. I think he's kind of like the Wesker for Capcom these days. Yeah. Um, He's been in a lot of other games, too. He's the, the first bad guy, I think, Kamashita in Persona 5 and a bunch of other games. Um, does really good bad guys. Um, and we, we got him to work on it. And, and our, our voice director is like, I love working with DC, but he's, he tends to work on a lot of anime projects. So I'm, like, worried, you know, will, will he want to do, like, a more naturalistic character? Of course, DC just walks in, and he's a fucking pro, and he just blasts through all the dialogue and he's he's doing it like hitting it perfect like every time just like this him is and just, Rick. this is clearly someone who does not know like how versatile uh, anime voice actors have to be oh days. oh no 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 he's he's aware but he also tended to work like super anime like chris is an incredible uh voice director um he's like one of my favorite people in games he was just like just a little worried, um, but he, he worries okay, about okay. everything, which is his job is to worry about everything. Um, I take it back then. That's that's good then. Actually, yeah, he, he was like he was like D, he's like I, I hope we can dial him in because I think DC has it in him to do this. You know, can we do it? Well, DC fucking knocked it out of the park. Like just spectacular performance. There were times where we were literally like, okay, that's really good, and he's like, yeah, but I can do it better, and then he would do wow. it better. Um, 
and uh, what was really good, what really made me really happy is, uh, and I said really a lot there. Um, That's okay. You were really, really, really happy. I was incredibly happy. But what blew my mind was when, uh, I think it was DC said, I would much rather be recording this. Because like, we, we have COVID, right? So we're actually recording like online through mm-hmm. like Skype and stuff. But they're going to a, like a professional sound uh, Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was a whole thing. But like I'm on Skype at the end, and I'm like terrified that it's going to be bad. It wasn't. It was great. The audio files are amazing. Um, but... He, he said something like, I really wish that COVID wasn't, you know, a problem right now because this is a performance that would benefit so much from, like, me and Rick being in the same room together. Mm, and that's not yeah. something you get in video games as often as you should. Like, the, the physical presence isn't usually required because you're saying things like, you know, shouting your attacks or just going on monologues or whatever. Doing doing the the Reno line from the yeah, remake. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was like, because, you know, he's like, I work in a lot of anime stuff and it's a lot of, you know, like shouting crazy lines and you know all you know saying here are my attacks and lots of grunts and stuff and you have like people who have motives in their scenes who want things and so i I tried to build a game that is a narrative experience in a different way than all the narrative games i've played which tend to be these you know um how do i put this a lot of the narrative games I played are just you listening to people talk. Like there's tape recordings yeah. or whatever. I wanted a person in the room with you. You know, how mm. does that change the dynamics of the space? Because I can't really think of many games that did that. Um, you know, except where there's like a first-person horror monster or very expensive AAA games. So I was just like, yeah. you know, what can we do here that's creative and interesting? So I've, I've tried, and when the game comes out within the next couple of months, hopefully people will, uh, you know... Hopefully it's good and people love it. Um, but hopefully yeah, I'm get interviewing least... you, and I did not know it was coming out in the next couple of months. Like, yeah, this we're... is something that I didn't know it was this this soon. Yeah, everyone's always surprised by that. Um, the uh, one of the Microsoft contacts we have, uh, Nick, who's amazing. Um, I was like, yeah, so we're like playable from beginning to end, or something like that. And we're at script lock, and he's like, what? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, and he's like. Okay, we thought this was going to take you like two years. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, I told you exactly how long it would take and exactly how much money we needed to make it. And while I was wrong about time, I was spot on on money. Like I, I budgeted the That's game perfectly. That's the one they want you to yeah. be spot on on. Yeah, I, well, I, I told them we're going to try to do on time and under budget. And we ended up being like on budget and slightly and over, over time. time. But Listen, under the, like, t- under the time they told us, like... They, are, they, they basically gave us two years, and I was like, I think we can do it in less than two years. Um, and we did. Like, we, this is, I think we're at 13 months when we ship. Like, wow. Yeah. We're, we're, it's a very tight game, but it's also a very small game, and it's you know, a game made with a, a team of like eight people. I think, you know, when we add like voice actors and, and like, you know, a contractor or two, I think we may get to like 11 people. But it's a very tiny game. And for some people, it's their first game. For me, one really important thing was this, like, I want to, anytime I make stuff with people, I want to make sure that they are secure, they are safe, they're getting paid fairly, because I've met so many people who, you know, try to take that, advantage of newbies. I've sure. been taken advantage of, right? So it's like, I want to try to pay people fairly. And I had a person, uh, I had a person who offered us a certain rate, and uh, N- Nelson, our producer, was like, you know, is that... Is that a you know? Is that really what we want to pay him? And I was like, doesn't that sound low? And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, so let's up it. <laughs> like, let's, bring, let's let's pay him more. Uh, so we ended up paying that person more because you know 
they deserved more. Um, Man, what a what yeah. a good what a good call that is to get. I, like I you want... got the job, and we're paying you yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. It was like it was like fuck you. I'm giving you more cash. Um, I, I think I literally said that. Um, and he That's he laughed because he knows me well enough that I can say that. Um, I yeah, can sure. Say that to a stranger. But you know, we <laughs> we had all the people who worked on this game. This is this is my point of pride, right? Like, I'm very happy that people like the script. That means that I did my job well. But I'm far more happy that everyone who's kind of moved on, because the game is close, right? So yeah. we don't need all our art assets being built or whatever, or our animations. Um, you know, that's done, right? So all those people who've kind of moved on, got other jobs and stuff, like, they, we help give them, you know, portfolio work in, in, in addition to paying them um, wages that are, are good. Not AAA standard, because we didn't have that much money, but, right. you know, enough that they were getting paid a little bit more than I got paid on hard space. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we paid them well. I, I hope so. Anyways, I, That's I, great. Knew, I knew a guy once who was like, Oh yeah. You know, we pay our people. Well. And I was like, how much do you pay? And he's like $10 an hour. And I'm like, and you want them to commute two hours a day? Yeah. That's bad. And work like 20 hours a week. Like, what? That's part of that whole, like, we're a family and, like, this is what families do kind of thing. Yeah, for um, me, it's like, I want to be like, you deserve better. And so I tried, to, I tried to run our team as best I could in that way. And um, as a result, pretty much everybody in there, not exit interview per se, but as they were, you know, we were having kind of our catch up, you know, is there anything else you need, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they all were, like, praised our production on the, on the project. Like, not the, not necessarily, like, scheduling and everything, but, like, they were all like, you are really good people, and we really had a good time working together, and I would love to work together again. Like, everybody wow. was, let's do it again sometime. That must uh, feel really yeah. good to hear. Yeah, well, I think that's more valid. Like, if I get a fucking 20 on Metacritic, that's not going to harsh my vibe. Um, I mean, it will, but... Of course <laughs> it will. <laughs> you know, but like... Say, I don't believe you. <laughs> okay, in, in my... Like, I will consider this project a win just from the fact that people were happy with working on the project. Like they, yeah, yeah. like my goal was to make sure that the team feels safe, feels, you know, like they have everything they need and I didn't do everything perfect. Like there was a, a point in the project where I had to, you know, I was both trying to find additional funding on the game. Um, like I said, I, I know I said that we, we got exactly the funding we needed, but uh, I, we kind of got it. Like some of it is milestone related. And so I was trying yeah, to get money course. before a milestone to see if we could extend our time. Um, so I was doing like that. I was trying to get, you know, like marketing and, you know, do we need a publisher or things like that? So I was doing all that and I kind of, I kind of bailed on a, a task, not bailed, but I, there was a task I needed to do, but the other stuff was bigger. So I was doing yeah. triage. And so, you know, there were little things like that. That's like, this is what happens when you are working on a very tiny project and don't have, you know, a, you know, over at a company like Ubisoft, you have like 50 producers who are all coordinating to make sure everybody gets their, you know, gets what they need. But I'm right, you know, sure. just like one person and we have one programmer and we have one animator. It's Yeah, it's and that's one of those things that I think I, I think what's cool about what you just said there is that like you're also not you're also not taking being a small studio for granted and saying like, yeah, like I'm a small studio, so that's fine. Like that happens when you when you have a small studio. It's you say instead I, you know, I'll try and do better next time. I'd love if that did not happen. Whereas I think a lot of small studios are like, yeah, that'll just happen. You know what? And uh, that's just the way things are. You're sort of approaching it as something to learn from, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, as a, like, if I were working for you, I'd want to hear that from, from you. Like that, that's cool. That's a really cool thing to hear. You shouldn't work outside your means, right? Like, yeah. 
I this is not the game. This is not my dream game, right? Which is probably bad when you're you're selling a game. You should probably be telling everyone this is. <laughs> I've don't worry. My whole life it, to write it, this. You they've know. they've like they've got they've been sold on the game at this point. I'm sure. I hope so. <laughs> but like, if if you give me infinite money, right? I'm gonna make a very different game. It's gonna be you know, it's gonna be like that uh, that story about the map that was so accurate to the world it covered the whole world. Mm-hmm. I think that was. Uh, Sounds like a Borges story. Yeah, it was. It was. That's that's the one. Um, I can't remember where that's from. I think it's his. It's the Aleph, like in the collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I would, I would build something really strange. Um, instead, I built a game that there are strange things happening in the world that are not in the game at all. Um, mm. People who know me on Twitter know about my horse obsession, um, and that's mentioned in the game. Like it's referenced. But it's not going to give you answers because Horse Game itself is a horror game and it is Alan Wake size or at least a size like the original pitch for Alan Wake where like this is an open world investigation game and it turns into a horror experience. Like, yeah, uh, that's what Horse Game would be. So I can't Mm. make that game right now, but that's, you know, I need like 60 people and I need $100 million. Um, (laughs) You know, I need horse motion capture, right? Um, so, you know, like that game. Mocap for horses, notoriously difficult. It is, yes, yes. So, like, there are things I do at different scales, but, like, this is the best project I can do in, the, in what I have. So, for me, a lot of it right now is just understanding my limits, understanding my strengths, my weaknesses. You know, what do I need to work on? Um, some people have said it's actually smarter to work on your strengths, um, mm. to kind of push into that. And avoid your weaknesses in creative work that might actually be good. Like, you know, if I know I can't do genre, for instance, then I should actually focus really hard on literary fiction or whatever, right? Right. That's what some people say. Um, That's interesting. I don't know if that's true, right? Like, part of me would be like, I want to fix all my strengths. But then, you know, there's the whole master of none uh, quote that, you know. So for me, it's... We all know so well. Yeah. For me, it really comes back to this teacher I had. His name was Shiva Kumar. And he was really tall and had a fro, and was this really boisterous guy. Um, he had done so many different jobs over his life, somehow he had ended up being the uh, department head for our school. And this is this little uh, community college I was going to as I was trying to pick up the pieces of my life after I got sick and had to give up being a professional pilot. Um, mm-hmm. So I started taking some classes from him, and he knew I hated programming, and he drags me out of the class. I, I used to be a good programmer, and then when I got sick, um, I had to relearn reading and writing, and I, I could never really get programming back. Mm-hmm. Um, he pulls me out of class, and he speaks Greek to me. And I, I mean that literally, by the yeah. way. He literally spoke Greek to me. And I looked at him, and I said, what? And this is like all the other students are still in class. Like This is in the middle of a three-hour lab. <laughs> he pulls me out, and we're standing there in the hallway, and he goes, yeah, know thyself. And I was like, oh, okay. What is, what is that? Like, <laughs> Why what? would you say that to me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, so, because he's, he's this fucking polymath genius wizard guy who knows everything and does all these jobs. I think he's like a medical department head now teaching at some medical school or something crazy like that. Uh, he was like, yeah, know thyself. Like, you want things in life. And you don't quite know who you are yet. And you don't know where you really want to be. I know that you want to make games, but I also know that you hate you know, programming in Flash right now. 
And I know you don't want to be doing that for the rest of your life. So know thyself. And, and that talk mm. went on for a, the majority of our three-hour lab. Um, and it was one of the most important talks in my life hmm. because it got me to kind of think, you know, okay, I need to understand who I am and what I want. So when I sit down and I, I come up with a game, like I know that people are like, oh, he should just shit posting games online. I, I know what they all are. I know how they play. I know the emotional tone of the game. Right. Um, you know, but I also know some of them can't be made or some of them can't, I can't afford to make them. Um, this game was small enough and weird enough um, that I knew it would be at least a little interesting. I don't know if it's, it's interesting enough yet. Um, but I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that people play it and they go, this is really, you know, this is really unique. But that's because the last game I came up with was like, you know, here's a walking sim where you are, you are the protagonist and not just somebody listening to the protagonist's story. And you have to shoot people and you have to smuggle tapes and you have to drive cars and you have to talk to people. Like, I make weird games. I'm, a, I'm aware of that. You know, <laughs> I, I could make a completely vanilla, you know, AAA, widely successful video game. It's not... Well, it's not it's, beyond you. Yeah, it's right. it's not like it's it's not like it's impossible for me to do you know do essentially the straight story, right? A lot of people compared me to Lynch on Paratopic, and I, I really resented that because I didn't know a lot of Lynch, mm -hmm. and so it felt like people were just saying they weren't seeing me. You know, I know myself, but I want other people to know me too, right? And they weren't seeing me in my work; they were seeing, you know, somebody who I didn't know. Um, yeah. And I, I was frustrated by that uh, because it, at some other times, you know, there were some people who were just like being lazy in their criticism. One guy was like, this game is bad because it's Silent Hill meets David Lynch. And it's clear they're just ripping it off. It's like, I've never seen much of either of those. Like, I, I, people, I think I, people love to just know things, right? Yeah. Like, even if they aren't true. I think I watched Blue Velvet, which was really okay. good. But like, that was like, that was it. You know, I have more influence from um, Alan Resnick's work. I think mm -hmm. in my work than than other than even David Lynch and of course Alan Resnick is probably knows a lot of Lynch because he made things like unedited footage of a bear and this house has people in it so he's very good at creepy weird stuff um, but like I would say he's more of an influence but even then what I came up with was almost entirely original like no one's no one's pointing out that the smuggled videotapes have a lot in common with uh, a like 1950s or 60s memoir called God's Smuggler, which is about a guy named Brother Andrew who smuggled Bibles through uh, Yugoslavia. Mm. Um, you know, but that's because I, you know, my mom made me read it when I was a kid, and um, the story about him at a checkpoint where he prays to God that the guards can't see the Bibles that he's carrying, and that's exactly what happens. They're sitting in the seat, um, and the guards just don't see them, even though they're contraband. Like, wow. that story is really interesting to me. And so I, you know, I take from things like that or like knowing about this guy who claims an angel came to him and told him to preserve planes. Like I'm picking and choosing from the more, some more esoteric things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's all my, you know, this lived experience that I've had, right? Like I, I've known somebody who claimed that uh, a prominent political figure I won't name threatened his family. And wow. he, he essentially withdrew from life like, I never saw him for, like, a, I don't know, a decade after that. And apparently he had this massive gun collection after that. Like, he was just buying guns to defend himself Waco style or something. Um, wow. Yeah, it was crazy, right? And so I've known people like that. I've known cultists. I've known serial killers, right? Like, BTK telling my dad 
you know, before we knew it was BTK. Um, Dad was like, you know, who is who is making this happen, right? Like, okay, uh, I should explain that story. <laughs> so <laughs> please, <laughs> Dennis Rader was our city's uh, animal control guy. Right. Um, code enforcement was, I think, his full job. Just he an shows up one day. Sadist in all methods, including right, his right. professional life, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons he was an animal control guy was apparently because he was doing animal abuse. Um, yeah, he just, well, then he loved making people upset. Like, yeah. it's emotional torture to be an animal control yeah. guy. Yeah. So he, he shows up at our house one day and he says, uh, I'm getting, rep- like, I, I don't want to alarm you or anything. Um, and it's clear, like, I've already done my inspection, but one of your neighbors uh, called a report on you and said that you were abusing your animals. Of course, we were all like, what? Because we had chickens. And we were like, yeah. what? Who, who, would, who would accuse us of that? You know, like, we aren't doing that. Is, you know, what can we do to, to, you know, not give off that impression or whatever? Because, um, you know, we're, we're trying to take care of them. He's like, yeah, no, no, I already inspected them. Like, your chickens are fine. They're great health. Um, it's very clear that you're not abusing your, your animals. Um, I'm just here to make a show. Like, to, to, you know, make it look like I'm taking that report seriously. And I did, but, like, you know, you guys are clearly fine folks. What happened after that was him showing up multiple times over a multi-month period in, I think, what, 2003, 2005? Um, yeah. Showing up and basically going, yeah, whoever did that did that again. And at one point, Dad's like, who could be doing this to us? It's very clear we're not doing this. Why would they keep calling, especially if you've reassured them? Because he said he'd reassured them that we weren't doing anything. You know, why are they... Why are they doing this? And uh, BTK goes, you have an enemy. Or something like that. Mm. Like, he said something just like that to my dad. I don't remember exactly what it was. But when I started writing Paratopic, I knew I wanted a line that hit right away. And so the first yeah. line of the game... You right, have an enemy. ...is you have an enemy friendo. And I picked friendo because Terry Pratchett mentioned that people who call, each other, like, call people friend generally aren't. Mm. Um, you know, it was one of the one of the Night Watch books, I think. Um, some guy talking like Fred Cullen or Nobby, and he says something like, "You know, I'd watch yourself, friend." And Pratchett was like, "You know, that kind of person is doesn't actually, you know, they're not your friend." So I went with yeah. Friendo. Um, a bunch of people thought that was No Country for Old Men because that's the only place they've heard it. I just like the way it sounded. Um, sure, I actually thought that when I. It, 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 I'm not trying to 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 to, to uh, you know. Uh, butter you up, but yeah, that I yeah. when it when it happened, I was like, oh, kind of no country for old men, but I think that's just a word. Like, it, I, I mean, yeah, okay. it, it is a word. It's not super common, but it's a word I've heard before. And you know, it was it was Pratchett that inspired the line, not McCarthy, um, mm-hmm. which I think for some people be like, wow, that's way more lowbrow than I thought. But you know, this is this lived experience. So you know, after BTK gets caught, suddenly, suddenly, uh, the call stop. Yeah, the call stop. There's no God. more BTK. So BTK and I was, was uh, self self uh, reporting you. Yeah, and I heard later from somebody else that uh, I mean his ML ML was getting into people's houses using his uniform. And yep. my family is pretty big. Um, there were parallels between the Otero family, who were his first kill, and my family in terms of size. Wow. Uh, um. So yeah, I mean he did gradually spend more time in our house. He you know. I think mom had me bring him, like, lemonade one time. You know, just stuff like that, right? Like, he was in the Boy Scouts. We were in the Boy Scouts. You know, just, just, he was getting in to our lives. And then suddenly he wasn't because he got caught. And that huh. family that he targeted, whoever that was, wink, wink, you know, pretty sure I know who it was. Uh, they got spared by the cops, basically. Um, wow. Which is one of the reasons why 
I know, like, some people, like, you know, abolish the cops. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, I like the idea of defunding the police, but at the same time, who would have stopped this man? For, like, he wants to kill my family, right? Yeah, it's How tough. you? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, like, later, a veteran shot up our neighborhood, and the cops were there to, they arrested him. Um, he was, he had PTSD and stuff. But, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Like, I got a call one day, and it was like, don't come home. Um, you know, your neighbor... Um, who had helped us, you know, when, like, our tree fell down in our front yard. He helped us chop it up. Like, he, something happened, and he is, like, shooting. Um, don't yeah, come home, it. right? So I'm, like, in this weird place where it's, like, I hate cops, and I hate the carceral state, but also I don't understand what a society can do to a person like Dennis Rader, right? I don't, I don't know how you stop a person like that without putting them behind bars as... as, as sad as that is so i'm i'm like here in my life right now i'm trying to read up on what people who talk about abolishing cops are saying like it's a it's a thing i'm still currently learning mm -hmm. right but i didn't really That's ever important have to, to learn yeah yeah I, I didn't have to reckon with that question until um realizing um within the past couple of years that the cops the cops are bad <laughs> i didn't <laughs> i didn't really get it you know, for most of my life, because I grew up in Kansas, a super conservative well, state, right? and they caught a serial killer in your town. I mean, you can be yeah, forgiven yeah. for that. So, for so sure. part of me, part of me owes them a little bit, right? But at the same time, I knew that the cops in our area were busting kids for their weed and then reselling that weed themselves. Um, you know, right. my my instructor uh, in film school, my, my one of my favorite teachers, uh, his name's Kevin Wilmot. He wrote the movie Black Klansman, which is about cops. Huh, I haven't um, heard of that movie. It <laughs> just just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Well, he, he's just written uh, Defy Bloods as well with Spike Lee, right? Like, he's, mm -hmm. he's a good writer. He, he did a satire called Confederate States of America, which was, like, basically, what if they won? Um, and, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a really good writer, and he was also a black activist. Um, and he had, I guess, like, a Department of Homeland Security equivalent. I don't remember what it was when he was, this was, like, in the 80s or something, come to his house and, like, be like, hey, we need to interview you about a bunch of your friends, and he was like, mm. you know, this is like intimidation, right? Um, yeah. And he told me something really interesting. He's like, yeah, see, one thing, one thing that you're going to notice is the Lawrence police won't bust you for having weed. But mm. the police where he lived, which is near the military base, he's like, they're way more strict. And it's because the police aren't here to keep society safe. They're here to, and you know, he starts talking about how like, they don't want army people smoking weed because that's bad for discipline. And so, you know, cops are agents of the state, basically. And really kind of, he helped me understand this. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was a way of, like, I, I'm really lucky that I've had a lot of really capable men of color in my life to teach me things I didn't know. And break me out of this hold that my, my super conservative family had on me. So now as I write fiction, my hope is that the fiction that I write can, you know, have an impact on the audience. The, in, like, I, I don't believe that art is didactic, right? I know there yeah. is some didactic art, right? But that's for children. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> Little Red Hen, right? Um, and it can, stories like that can cause damage. Little Red Hen really tells you that uh, anyone who isn't successful is lazy, um, sure. which is a very right-wing belief. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm in this position where it's like, I... I look up to these guys who taught me a lot and who helped break me out of, of this shell. And I try to make games because, like, in the spirit of what they taught me. But I'm also living 
a life where I've had these unique experiences, like knowing a serial killer, and I'm trying to put that into my work too. Mm. And so I'm trying to create this, this work that, you know, for, for me, Audios is incredibly personal. And there are things that I'll never, ever need to talk about in regards to that game that are just there for me. And there are other things that I'm hoping the audience gets. For me, there's a scene in the game where a character says, so what was the point of you telling me this? And our character starts to falter, and then he's like, I don't, I don't really know. And that's probably the most didactic I get. I'm basically just saying not everything needs to have a point. There are other ways yeah. to appreciate things, right? I and mean, this is, it, for a video game, that is a, a radical position. Maybe, yeah. You might be right. As I think, I think about position. it, you I might think be right. smart. But I, I just booted yeah. up. I just booted up Horizon Zero Dawn the other day, and that game's like, um, God, it did something. It was like there's a cutscene at the start of the game where the guy just tells you about the world. He's like, Yeah, so we don't like the ancient ones because they built the robots to make you know society collapse, and so we issue technology because we're a very cliche, you know, culture basically. <laughs> like we are very standard sci-fi. And it's this right. really long cutscene, and it's unskippable as far as I can tell. Um, <laughs> and I found this out because I, after I watched the whole cutscene, uh, and I closed the game, I was like, I changed some settings, and I closed the game because it, it, that's before the main menu. Oh, close the game, turn it back oh. on, you get the cutscene again. Oh no! Yeah, it turns out the only way to stop that is to start a new game, play it for a bit, save, and then that won't show up. It's it's part of the port issues the game has. Really that's good looking terrible. game though. Terrible. Okay. It's it's very standard open world game. Like it's it's you know all that work they put into the robot dinosaurs. It's still a game where you you know walk around, pick up crafting stuff, and you know it's it's the Ubisoft template game. Yeah, um, sure. With a cool premise. Um, and the Death Stranding engine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Decima is, is beautiful. Um, and that game is stunning. I found out Craig Mullins, the concept artist for, like, Bungie's Marathon, worked on it. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, he, he apparently drew all his marathon art with a mouse. Because um, mm. it was, like, pre-Wacom days. Uh, and everyone's, like, the, uh, as a friend of mine was saying, a concept art friend of mine, he's like, no one knows how he did it because that should be impossible. <laughs> Incredibly talented guy, right? Like, they have amazing really people cool. working on that game. But it's still a game where the storytelling is just, like, here's the setup and the lore and like they don't do the drama. So I've done a game where if we'd had more budget and more time, um, you would have, you would have found out more things are off. Um, we wanted to have a picture of the, the farmer fought in the Vietnam war. Um, and he is, I wanted a picture of like him and his squad where one of the man has, one of the men has a goat head. That's mm. never talked about. Um, you know, we have the, the dia dialogue with the horse where, like, you talk to the horse, and it's implied there's definitely something weird going on there. Right. But it's just kind of unsettling. Um, you know, we have all these things that, that kind of shape the game of the world. I have multiple games I could take from this. I mention a character who I hope is the protagonist of the shooter I get to make. Um, you know, I, I have all these things that I'm doing with this game. I'm trying to compress it all, though, into, rather than a game about explaining a lot of shit, a game about two people who don't want to talk about the fact that one of them probably has to die. Mm. And so I'm hoping that people get carried along with the emotions and they don't refund the game for being short <laughs> or anything. And, you know, I'm hoping I, if I, I think people who do that are like lower, lower than dirt. Yeah, I, I will. You know, on Paratopic, I think it was uh, like 0.49% of all people. Like okay. Less yeah. Than and I mean, that that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, I'm hoping that people understand this is an experimental and a strange game, but they buy it in large enough numbers that I can make a newer, bigger game with gameplay. Because, um, like, I mean, it has gameplay, right? Like, you can do horseshoes and you can go fishing and all sorts of stuff, but it's not, it's not like standard loops. You know, it's not like you're doing a first-person shooter where you pick up guns and you fight guys and there's encounter design and all that stuff. Like, it is, it is a game about being on a farm and inhabiting the farm and existing in this space and listening to it. That's one of the reasons there's no music is just listening to, you know, the, the insects or the wind. Because um, it's a sad game. Like, when I yeah. talked to my artists, I said, look... If you make a horror game, right, and somebody says, make a clock for me, and you make it like a grandfather clock, you probably try to make that, croc- that clock look a little creepy, right? Like, you try to light the scene so it, it unsettles the audience. Like, you, you intentionally kind of take the props in a direction that creates an emotion. Right. And, you know, that's, that's what set design is, right? Um, one thing that I love about horror games is that they're all emotionally driven. Like, when, when people design those games, they're like, ooh, how can we make this scary? So they're... Mm-hmm. Their encounter design, their weapon design, their inventory, every aspect of the game is suddenly dedicated to emotion. And that doesn't happen in like any other genre. Like what emotion are you supposed to feel in Horizon Zero Dawn? At least in the intro, I couldn't tell you. Um, other than like making the, the girl feel kind of disconnected from everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a baby who can't talk at the start, so that doesn't even count. Um, yeah, yeah, I wanted to make a game that had a genre but wasn't that like wasn't horror so i said if that's a you know if that's a horror game like paratopic was a horror game this is a a melancholy game so how Mm. do we make our art assets and our sky and our animals and our sounds how do we make all those melancholy because that's that's the world that we're creating here and yeah, I mean, I have silly dialogue where a guy uh, says a very obviously German word and the other guy is like, is that French? And the guy's like, I don't know, probably German. <laughs> you know, like I have, these, I have these lines that I hope make people laugh. Like I want to take them through an emotional journey here so it's not all monotone. Yeah. So, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it works. I'm hoping people love it because I would love to, you know, get, I have diabetes. I need insulin within a year or two. Like, I'm, I don't have medical care right now because I'm poor. You know, I need medical care. I want this game to sell well enough that I can get that and fund a new game. This is know? a call to action. I mean, honestly, I think people should go out and buy Adios. Go, go ahead and go buy Adios. Like, uh, I don't know. Can you pre-order it on Steam? Unfortunately, it or unfortunately, no. And, you know, if it was coming to other consoles, I couldn't tell you that um, mm-hmm. other than the Xbox. Wink. Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, if, if I, for instance, had maybe, you know, certain next generation dev kit for an Xbox, I couldn't tell you. Um, you know, <laughs> things like that, right? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not allowed to say where it's going other than it's coming to Xbox One and Steam. Um, okay. So it's, it's available, you know. I, I would love to see it on Game Pass, you know. I, I wouldn't even mind if it was on streaming services, you know. I, don't, I, I would love people to play the game and just have an experience and hopefully have a good time. And, you know, it doesn't, this isn't like a big blockbuster event, right? Because we didn't have the budget for a big blockbuster event. There will be a time when I make a game that is so big, the sky is a ceiling. Like, you look up and you just see numbers in the sky because they're painted on the concrete that's past the mm. atmospheric distortion, right? There's, there's one level in that game. The prototype exists. It's, it's already playable. Um, Doom Eternal has most of the mechanics that we had in our prototype, but not all of them. Um, 
you know, we had the ice grenade, we had the air dash, we had the grappling hook shotgun. We had all these things that are now in Doom Eternal, which is really weird to me because we were the prototype is from 2016. Uh, but we huh. had up to 11 players playing it simultaneously. Oh yeah, we created like it was basically the pitch was uh, Titanfall meets Monster Hunter um, <laughs> as a co-op Great game. Pitch. Great yeah, pitch. Yeah, I mean, we had this boss like we couldn't we didn't have any animators at the time, so we made a boss who was a giant egg. And he has eyes all over his body, and uh, they shoot lasers, and you can just shoot the eyes out. And uh, he can't shoot lasers out of those eyes anymore, so it lets you get close. <laughs> um, we had all these really cool, like, it is an amazing game. Um, but it looks like butt, because we couldn't afford any artists at the time. Never work for yeah, free, sure. by the way. Like, never work for free. Anyone ever says, you know, hey, let's work together on a, you know, on a, on a project, and we'll Don't do royalties do or something. I've done it enough to know the, you should never do that. Um, mm -hmm. Every time I've done it, there has always been bad blood somewhere. You know, you can tell people up front, like, absolutely, we cannot pay you. I want you to understand, if you're doing this, there is no money here. You know, I, I was trying to be as upfront as humanly possible, and I still had people being, like, you know, having some expectations of control or whatever. There's some guy who now runs around claiming that uh, I'm not actually disabled because he didn't get to take over the project. <laughs> like, th there's people like that out there. I don't know what to do. So just never, ever in your life ever work for free <laughs> like yeah um, don't worry no one no one ever asks me to collaborate on anything i've been working alone forever um i i love collaborations they're amazing like i love working with as many people as i can but unless you have really good paperwork so everyone <laughs> understands exactly what it is and you have a good chain of command it's not going to work um <laughs> so you know that's one of the reasons why i like working on audio so much is we got the funding like we we paid a guy to do a sort of visual concept and I leveraged my, you know, hey, I've made this game that literally just won an IGF award last night. That's when I pitched it. Yeah, like yeah, The day yeah. after I won the award. You know, like, I can do this. I can direct a, a really interesting game. And, you know, a bunch of people were like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And the people who offered the most money were the ones we went with. Um, well, I should say, it was more, it was more <laughs> than just the most money. It was, uh, they were like, yeah, we won't ask for IP control. Um, and it will be considered as being published by you. We're not even going to, like be the publishers on the game. Um, really, it was a great deal, and, and the partners there have been amazing, and I cannot speak highly of them enough, um, but I don't know if I'm supposed to speak about them. Um, mm -hmm. but, you know, like, we got funded, and so we were able to pay people, and like, say, hey, here is money that we have, and you're getting it in exchange for labor. It's fantastic. And those people, yeah, and then those people did their work, and all their work is amazing, and I'm, I'm in love with it, and I hope people love the game as much as I do. But it's also a very tiny video game. Uh, a friend of mine um, who worked on games like, you know, Killzone 2 and Battlefield Bad Company. His name's David Goldfarb. He's amazing. Um, he, he told me, he's like, yeah, I don't think you can get, trust, like, get people to trust you yet. Not because you're untrustworthy, but because you're new, right? And, like, mm. how much money can someone risk on you? Yeah, that's the no, kind of enough. game. He's like, yeah, that's the kind of game you got to pitch. Like, you can't pitch, like, a $20 million game right now at this point in your career. And I was like, yeah, he's right. He's right. He's always giving me great advice, I think. Um, and I'm really excited for his game, uh, Metal Hellsinger, which is, he's got Bjorn Strid from Soil Work, I think, on it. Like, he's got oh, all nice. these amazing metal singers. Um, the music is incredible. Um, and it's like a rhythm shooter, which is really odd. Um, but I'm very excited for that game. But yeah, like, the only reason I'm in this industry is because I've had, despite all the people in my life telling me that what I'm doing is, like, I'm no good, I'll never be any good, I'll never make anything cool. You know, I've had, um... I've had people say, you know, you'll never be successful without me, all this stuff, right? I've had really good people who've given me advice, who are making amazing projects on their own, you know, and finding those people is hard. 
Like, I'm so lucky that even before I got into games, I had, you know, Kevin Wilmot and Shiva Kumar, like, giving me this advice and saying, yeah, yeah. you know, this is important. I had this guy, Ed Pearson, super tall uh, law professor uh, who saw, saw that something was wrong. And uh, he got me my first job, which was like a, a lab assistant job. And he, he got to talking with me. And he's like, yeah, one thing you got to understand is like, fuck your family. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, your family wants you to be somebody. They want you to be somebody very specific. Do you want to be that somebody? If not, fuck your family. Go do what you need to do. Like, you don't have to be what other people want you to be. That's cool. So, yeah, I've had all these really, really sort of strong people in my life who have helped me get to where I am. And yeah, I'm poor. I'm diabetic with no coverage because I live in America. Like, I am not where I need to be. I may not even be where I deserve to be, but I'm here and it's much further than I thought I'd ever get. And now I'm making a game about a pig farmer who is trying to tell a hitman that he can't keep letting, he can't keep empowering murders, basically. Mm. He can't keep disposing of bodies. Um, I mean, and hopefully right. people like it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I could do more. And I could make this game about a moon. Yeah, it's, oh, it's literally, yeah, yeah. I, I made a Twitter thread that was like, hey, lore isn't important. And of course, a lot of writers, they love lore because there's a, a human motivation thing where if we talk about what we're doing or if we sort of do things like lore, our brains tell us, you've done work. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And you get a sense of accomplishment, which kills the reward center in your brain. Um, it kills motivation. And... Uh, so I was doing a thread talking about how lore has like a lot of, there's a lot of problems to wanting to write lore first. Um, lore is better at spice, like making your story better than it is about like being the thing. Um, you know, it's from Horizon Zero Dawn. I don't want anything in the game right now. I don't really have anything driving me forward except objective markers. But in a game that's really interesting, right? In, in a game like, say, Half-Life, where you're feeling, oh, I'm late for work and all these people are staring at me. Um, or, you know, a, you know, a D-Day game, right, where you're, like, getting shot at on a beach and you have to seek cover immediately. Like, oh, those games can drive you to take action and to do interesting things. But you don't need lore for that. So I made a thread about that. And I said, like, you know, I don't need to know that your, uh, your world has two moons. And I wrote that and then I went, you know, it'd be really cool, though, if one day a second moon showed up in the sky just out of the blue and then that night you're woken up by a presence standing near your bed and it's this like human body with a moon for a head and it says, hey, I need you to help me kill the moon. <laughs> and then you do a game from there and I thought, you know, that would actually be really interesting. And so now I've kind of worked out the whole game, the emotional arcs of it, what it's trying to do, what it's about. And I think it'd be a really cool game. But like I also need to be able to hire like several animators. Yeah. Um, and I need particle effects artists, and I need a, a whole lot of things um, to make it work. And I need to hire Mike Patton to do the voice. Um, <laughs> of course, of course. The Darkness is an amazing game. Um, you know, like so. There's all this stuff that I would love to be able to do, but it's all about budget. You know, if I want to, yeah. if I want to put a cat in a game, I need to make sure that cat is animated really well. Because um, I mean, what good is a cat if it's not a slinky? Um, you know. So I mean, look. So like, ultimately, people should buy this game so you can get better funded and and keep making games. Yeah, basically, if you want weird shit, give me money, and I will give you more weird shit. All right. That's my, that's my contract, that. right, with the world. <laughs> You're got, and no one's going to dispute that ever. That's a great contract. Um, all right. Uh, where can people find your work? Uh, well, I am most easily found as uh, at DocSquiddy on Twitter. 
Um, of course. I live there people, people probably know you there. Yeah. Um, I... I mean, technically, if you Google, like, if you search Audios on Steam, you will find a, a page where you can wishlist the game. Oh, um, you can wishlist it. Okay, great. Great, great, great. Yeah, I think That's my company's at, I should know this better, but if you want to follow my other games without me talking so much, you can follow uh, at Mischief Develop, because our company's name is Mischief, because um, we're up to no good. Um, we're up to shenanigans, tomfoolery. Um, and, you know, I mean, I have a medium which I think is also at Doxus, where I write like up to 13,000 words on why Death Stranding is a game about human connection and attempt to create human connection in the, the essay itself. Um, I'm writing now about uh, The Last of Us, and it's going to be about living through a tornado and what that was like. Mm. Um, cool. And how humans respond to disaster. So, like, yeah, I, I write these really long essays. So, if you you don't like my Twitter, that's a really good place to follow me. Is medium.com slash at docsus, I think. If you don't like, uh, if people don't like your Twitter and they just want more from you. Well, yeah, I mean, so I found that some people are like, I really like what you've written. Your essays are, are really well thought out and whatever. But then you make like shit posts on Twitter. And I'm like, yeah, I'm. I'm a man of many talents, like two talents, <laughs> you know, I've got Fair three, enough. but you know, two are the, the, those are the, those are the gaming related ones. My third talent is just like, I'm actually pretty good at playing the trombone. Um, you know, so yeah, he, yeah. At Doc Squiddy, at Mischief Dev, and then on Medium at Doc Seuss. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thanks for being here, man. This was really fun. Oh, it was really fun. Thank you for letting me talk about my weirdest shit games. Hey, always. All right, well, uh, come again soon. Come again when uh, Adios comes out. Sounds good. All right, sounds good. Talk to you then. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash no cartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to. 